from Hong Kong, Chicago, and the city of Stoke-on-Trent. This is the Classic Lenses Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 103. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by... Actually, I'm not quite joined by Johnny Sisson, but he will be along later. But Perry G is here. Hello, Perry. Hello, Simon. I think you meant to say this is the award-winning Classic Lenses Podcast. I don't know about that. I mean, certainly second best podcast. A silver medal is an award. I'll take it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that, that's good. And, and that's and yeah, we've we've got to say thank you to all those listeners that voted for us in the Sunny Sixteen Awards, the Sunnies uh, that went out last was it last Thursday? I think that went yes. out. So uh, yeah, so thank thank you for all those people that uh, voted for us. A bit of a little bit of a surprise, really. Um, oh that, yeah. Um, the Sunday Sixteen podcast is a fully analog film podcast, um, and pretty much all the other people that were nominated and named were all film podcasts. Whereas we're um, yes, we're we we like our film here, but we're not a true. Uh, film podcast because we we also talk digital as well so that's 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 pretty good going really mm-hmm. film photography podcast of the year second place yeah. thanks to everyone who voted i will be happily take that definitely definitely so uh yeah so thank you again now uh, as i mentioned there uh johnny isn't with us yet but we're hoping uh that johnny uh when he's finished off whatever he's doing uh <laughs> will be will be with us at some time um and uh, and to be fair to johnny we're doing this show a little bit earlier than normal so um he's, he's getting himself together so uh, fingers crossed he'll be along later but we do have a guest and i'm very very pleased to have uh from albuquerque um we have ethan moses hello ethan hey thanks for having me on guys that's it so are we now the only podcast you've never been on before or uh, there's a few but this is like maybe the only podcast that i talk to most of the hosts on a semi-regular basis that i've never been on <laughs> well uh, as uh, as as people will know uh, ethan is a pod tart and uh, <laughs> it's true you can, you i can, get around yeah you can hear ethan almost everywhere um and uh and because of that, we're uh, we're going to make sure that we're we're going to talk about things that Ethan doesn't really get a chance to talk about that often, and that's his love of lenses. And he has a great love of lenses, and he's been a follower of this podcast for for a long time. Um, and there are quite a few things that uh, I know that he wants to get off his chest of uh, certain lenses and uh, and why he likes them and why perhaps he doesn't and so on. Um, so. I think we let's do a proper introduction just in case people haven't come across Ethan before, which is you know, quite possible. Um, so, Ethan, perhaps you might want to give us a, a very potted um, history about yourself. Yeah, okay. Um, where do I start? Um, I've been taking pictures for most of my life. I grew up in New York. I thought I was a mountain adventurer, which meant that I used to collect backpacking gear and walk around the Bronx with my friend Nikki like we were, you know, mountain adventurers <laughs> where there was no trees in sight. And when I was about 14, I bought it. my first camera. It was a Nikon N60 and some terrible Vivitar lens uh, because we were going to go to the Grand Canyon. Uh, that 
summer, I broke my ankle right before school ended and we canceled the trip and my mom felt bad for me. So I had bought this camera and she bought me an enlarger and I sat on the floor of my bathroom with a towel over the window pretty much all summer learning print pictures. And I've been hooked ever since. Um, I've done a lot of weird and wacky jobs from, oh, running truckloads of women's clothing all over the country to working at a credit union as a <laughs> as a banker uh, to buying and selling cameras all over the country uh, for the better part of the last decade. I've been to 50 states now. I've bought and sold just about every camera and lens you can think of. Um, more recently, I got into building brewery equipment and other electromechanical things. And about a year and a half ago, I had a 3D printer on my desk for the purpose of laser etching PCBs and was waiting for some chips uh, to come in from China, which took about two months. And with the 3D printer staring at me, I decided to 3D print a camera, which was the first camera dactyl 4x5 folding field camera. I just made it for myself, liked it, put it on Kickstarter, sold a medium amount of them, which then took me way too long to fulfill. It was a real money loser, but an interesting opportunity uh, at the time, which made me medium internet famous. Um, I got to meet all of you guys in the, the podcasting world and the blogging world. Uh, I bought 10 3D printers, and yeah, for the last year and a half, I have tried to spend more and more of my time designing and printing cameras. And just, uh, just to bring things right up to date, and we've we've mentioned this, well, I've certainly mentioned it on a, on a few um, previous shows recently. Um, you've just finished a uh, successful campaign on Kickstarter for your Brancopan camera. Um, so uh, where where are where are we with that now? Where are all the backers um, yeah. and your plans for getting getting things out to them? So I haven't completely finished yet. Um, Kickstarter told me, well, first of all, thank you very much for all of your support during the campaign. I really couldn't have done it without all the help from podcasts and blogs and YouTubers and other Instagram influencers. Um, it really means a lot to me that you spent so much time shouting it from the rooftops on your podcast and other people's podcasts. It did not go unnoticed. Um, where it is now, um, Kickstarter sent me an email saying that funds were being deposited uh, I have not seen them in my bank account yet, but I assume they will go through today or tomorrow. And I have all of the files zipped up. I have sent you the files already. Um, but when the when the check clears, I'm going to send them to the other 800 or so people who have backed me. And then I just got in a couple of days ago the uh, acrylic that I'm going to laser etch all of those dials out of and uh, focusing screens and so I need to spend a few hours cutting a few hundred uh, dials and focusing screens in, sometime this week, and I should send those out by the end of this week or next week. And I hope, you know, by the end of February, there should be a few hundred Bronco pans out in the world um, sending me pictures back. I hope. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen, and, and thank you for sending those files through to uh, files through to me. And um, I don't know what I was expecting really, but there were there were far more files. And far more components are going to go into this camera than the press I gave it credit for. So I'm going to <laughs> yeah. be quite busy, I think. Yeah, there's like almost 50 pieces, not including screws. It's, um, I don't know if you've watched the assembly video. So <laughs> funny thing is, um, you know, it took me many months to refine the camera, but uh, it took me more time making all of the 
YouTube videos for advertising the Bronco pan and talking about it and then how to slice it, how to assemble it and how to use it than it did to design the initial thing. Like I'm terrible at YouTube. I think I can make like 10 cameras in the time that it takes me to make 10 videos. But, um, you know, I've been trying to keep them clear and concise and followable, if not entertaining. But, um, yeah, I'm excited to see what what people think as they follow along through pretty pretty dry material. Well, I'm I'm, um, by three quarters through the the slicing uh, Mm -hmm. uh, video. And just for those people that might not understand slicing is the um the process of where you've designed something on the, correct me when i go wrong um you design something on a in cad you then send that into another piece of software that that is able to um put instructions onto an sd card um so that the printer can understand uh what it needs to do Mm-hmm. And going going through that that video was was extremely informative to me because I'm I'm still very very new to 3D printing, and uh, you go through all the settings on the on this free software that's that's available and um and it's been it's been fascinating because my printer does not work in the same way as it did uh, before yeah. using your settings. Hopefully, it's working a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, it is. In the in the main, it is. But it's also interesting just how the differences are as well, um, and and of course that's just down into the settings and what software you use and 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 so on. So it's 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 quite interesting to see just what variability you actually have and control that you actually have at the way of uh, things actually come out on the three D printer. So it's. Uh, yeah, that's that's been an interesting experience, and certainly the the video that I'm watching at the moment. I think, uh, as you say, it's a it's a dry subject, but it's uh, it's very easy to follow, and it's it's interesting too. Cool. I'm I'm glad you liked it. Um, I made like a couple of page document with some screenshots for people who already are familiar with 3D printing, just so they could see what settings I'm using instead of watching an hour long video, which I recorded and edited twice, by the way, because the first one I spent about four hours cutting out all the times I went, uh, or, um, (laughs) while thinking about what I was going to do. And then I played that back and tried to say it concisely and quickly, but also clearly. (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting all the parts together and then (laughs) it's going to be like a marathon session, uh, just getting the things that the, to to go together because there's there's always going to be tolerance issues aren't there with the these things so some things are going to have to be adjusted and sanded and uh, chipped away at no doubt yep for sure i think that sort of comes with pushing the uh, the abilities or or sort of pushing the technology to the, the limits of the medium which i think is the interesting part about it right i think this is by far the most complicated 3d printer 3d printed camera or maybe one of the only you know, most complicated things out there that you can download and print. It's not exactly a soap dish. Um, there are a few other things out there that are also pretty complicated. But um, yeah, I think <laughs> people. I don't think they're going to have a hard time with it. But it should take them, you know, a week, a week of nights turning the printer on to print overnight, and then you know, two or three weekend days putting the thing together. But I think that's probably a plus for most of the people that are interested in the project. I think you're going to learn a whole lot about how cameras work, uh, just putting the thing together. Ethan, have you ever considered putting one of these out with just an IKEA-style manual? Um, yes. Yes, I have. <laughs> um, 
the problem is um, when you buy IKEA furniture, it's already produced and you just put it together. Um, mine, you, you get nothing but the manual. And so the uh, manual yes. has to include like saw the board to 18 inches by 24 inches, you know, sand the edges. I, I try and make it, you know, like I know that there are a lot of engineers out there who are going to build this camera, but also there's just a lot of photographers who might not have any experience with 3D printing or assembling anything. People might not have torn down a Leica to every single part and putting it, put it back together. Like I, I want to make it so that you don't have to know anything coming in uh which granted ikea furniture you don't have to know anything uh, but uh yeah i i want to be as thorough as possible without any extra wasting of people's time you know one of my first jobs i lived in an apartment building when i was about 10 years old people used to pay me about five or ten bucks to assemble their ikea furniture <laughs> i was very good at it i was very happy to have that job so a, a thought's occurred to me. Um, the, the Kickstarter's finished and you're, you're busy making sure that everything goes out in the way that it should do and so on. Um, there may well be a few people uh, listening to this podcast that have just heard what you've, we've just been talking about and thinking, well, that sounds quite interesting. I, might, I quite fancy having a go at that. Um, well, what's, what's the next stage after you've, you've dealt with the Kickstarter people and people in the future want, want to have a go sure. at this? So when I do... When I do all of the laser cutting for the dials and uh, calibration tools, I'm going to cut a bunch extra, and then I will throw those up on cameradactyl.com. And then anybody who buys, I think I'll probably sell it as a pack of a laser cut dial and focusing screen. Um, we'll just get all of the files emailed to them, and they'll be pretty expensive. And then in May, if you can wait that long, uh, the files will go out for free to the world. You know, if you want to donate, there'll be a pop-up donate, but you don't have to. And um, yeah, as, as I pledged in the Kickstarter May 1st, um, everything will be available for free to the world. Excellent. And of course, you know, people strip that, you know, you talked about there, the focusing screen and the, the laser uh, etched dial, strictly speaking, people don't have to have those. They're more of a nice to have, aren't they? Correct. Yeah. Um, you don't need them. Uh, you can focus with a greasy piece of, paper that you've rubbed a piece of pizza on or, you know, <laughs> wax paper or, or scotch tape. And, um, yeah, the dial you can just mark with Sharpie or um, I need to actually, the last file I need to add to the pack, which you did not get, is a PDF of the dial that you could, you know, print out on a sticker or something. But, um, yeah, it's it's just sort of a thank you for a suggested donation type of thing. Right. Oh, that's cool. Now, um one uh, and this is where we're going to link seamlessly uh, from building cameras into lenses um this well actually the, the very first thing i printed um of your camera was the lens mount cool and uh and that's that lens mount is designed uh to take uh, mamiya press lenses or universal mm -hmm. lenses i think they're sometimes mm -hmm. called as well um yep. and i'm i'm lucky enough uh, to to have one of the more desirable ones, should we say, uh, because it's the, the widest angle, which is a 50 millimeter lens. Uh, it's quite a slow lens. It's 6.8, but I think for the use of this camera, which I don't think we've actually talked about what it, what it, what it is, but it's a panoramic camera. Um, is it, does it use the same um, format as, as the X-Pan? 
No, it's it's uh, a little narrower than the X-Pan. It's 24 by 58, which works out to be uh, 1 to 2.4 aspect ratio, which is the same as cinema anamorphic, uh, yeah. which is sort of industry standard for movies. That's uh, also the same size as the Horizon. Yeah. Right, so that's that's an interesting one because you, you obviously have completely free reign on on the choice of uh, of, of the size of the image. So why why did you choose that that particular one? Um, so it's funny you mentioned that you printed the lens mount first. I also printed the lens mount first because I had been making them for this uh, other camera that I sell on my website, the Homunculus. I made that camera for Nick Lyle who had some wacky demands and uh, going back, back and forth with him, we, we hashed out this camera that I really love. But um, my friend Eric Bronco is a up and coming and sort of very fancy, I, I call him Hollywood now, uh, director of photography. And he won uh, the grand jury prize at Sundance last year for this movie Clemency that he shot, where I guess the movie won. Uh, but he sort of had a meteoric rise after that, and that opened up some opportunities for him to shoot other feature films. And he got to shoot his first feature film on film um, this year. And he, you know, I go to him when I have video questions, and he comes to me when he has, uh, you know, analog lens questions, uh, still photography questions. And he was asking me about X pans and alternatives. You know, he was not super into spending three to five grand on an X pan that wink out at any moment and not be repairable um, so you know I tried to convince him to do any number of things that he was not into and that that kind of got me into thinking about making a panoramic camera out of that lens mount that I had already made for the homunculus and kind of didn't think it was the best of business ideas at the time but you know sometimes I can't help myself and I spend all day just you know making a toilet flapper valve lever <laughs> just because I think I can. Anyway, I, I spent a few months tinkering with that. And, you know, I knew there was a hole in the market there. I knew that that's something that's very popular and that the mm -hmm. X-Pans won't last forever and nobody's going to make their PCBs until we have, you know, um, pick and place 3D printers, which are coming and we can make flexible PCBs at home. Um, yeah, so I, I kind of made it for him and thinking about cinematographers in general. Uh, basically, he wanted to shoot some Cinestill to test the emulsions that he was going to be shooting on set before shooting thousands of feet of film. I went to visit him halfway through or a third of the way through while I was in New York, and they had shot something like, I don't know, was, uh, maybe $50,000 worth of film so far. You know, it, was, it was really nuts. There was a, a woman there whose entire job was to stand with her hands in a dark bag all day, loading and unloading like 400 foot magazines. That's all she did. <laughs> it was insane. <laughs> it took three people to operate his camera. Um, you know, he operated the camera by getting on the microphone and very quietly whispering to the woman holding the camera and then the other person, uh, focusing the camera <laughs> and controlling the aperture and he just got to look at the set who's sometimes he picked it up but it weighed like 80 pounds it's a real monstrosity it's really interesting to me you know when, when i look at your branco pan um one of the things that i really like about uh, the little thought the, you know little small touches um, that are put. I, into, I put very little thought into everything. <laughs> well, it, <laughs> I mean, I think the one thing that jumps out at me is when I looked at this camera. Obviously, I have an X Pan, 
Um, so I was looking at, you know, how would the shooting experience compare? And I really like the fact that you've put two cold shoes on it, both for the placement of the uh, the framing window, the viewfinder, um, but also because that would allow you to put an external rangefinder on top mm-hmm. uh, if you wanted to. You know, if you're like me, I'm so bad at guessing guessing distances for anything less than maybe five meters. Sure. Um, have you have you tried shooting it with uh, with an external rangefinder? Yeah. So I have a bunch of uh, like. Razia or Bowen's uh, external rangefinders. I even have a design that I have uh, calculated in CAD, but not been able to print satisfactorily for an external rangefinder. I used one on the homunculus pretty often. Usually I'm using like a 93.5 or a 103.5 on it, which has pretty shallow depth of field. And I might use it wide open for a portrait. And mm-hmm. then you really need either a rangefinder or what I really love for portraiture is a six foot long string with a knot at the end that goes into my <laughs> tripod mount. And I just throw it to somebody and say, Hey, stretch this out, hold it at your eye. Uh, they do. And then they throw it back to me. The perfect portrait every time. But, um, that's not always the greatest for, you know, less cooperative subjects. So, uh, a little $30 accessory rangefinder is great. You know, I started using it on the Bronco pan, but the way I wound up really loving to use it is just setting it to F16 and hyperfocaling, which mm-hmm. means that everything from five, four and a half feet to infinity is in focus. So, you know, it didn't really take much guesswork. Uh, really, I just would set it to like F16 and 125th of a second or, you know, a little bit faster for faster films and set it from four and a half feet to infinity. And it's it's basically a point and shoot. It's like the quickest camera I've ever used, which is kind of nutty, right? I clearly could use any other camera just as fast, but because it's uh, limited in the way that it focuses, it forced me to be real quick this way. I'll probably start using some Nikons and Leicas in the same way. That's cool. So lenses-wise, it's designed... Uh, you've, well, you've done two cameras now that are designed to use uh, the uh, Mamiya pressed uh, lenses do you want to just quickly go through the the reason why that's an attractive lens for you to use for when you're making your own camera sure yeah so um that lens was sort of insisted upon originally by nick lyle uh, the homemade camera podcast who really loves them and loves them for homemade camera building uh, because you buy a unit and it has a focusing helix a shutter an aperture and a lens all built into one and it covers a pretty good area some lenses cover a little bit larger than others which means that you know the things that you have to build are really minimal right so the uh, og which is a four by five has a focusing helix in it and it's a lot of the work and expense in selling those things is actually creating the helix um here you don't have to do that and i think a lot of homemade camera builders use them they're really superbly made um which I think better than resolving power is how much I can bang it against a rock and it will still work because <laughs> you, I mean, you could get the, the finest equipment on earth. I'm, if I shatter it, it's no good. And I have, yeah, I used to have a camera graveyard. Like I have broken over the years, maybe a dozen Nikon FEs and FMs. Uh, I'm very hard on equipment. I like to climb up things and occasionally slide down cliffs and things like that. So I think they're very well made and have, reasonable sharpness and contrast i think they have that nice classic lenses look they're modern lenses but they're not you know 
contemporary lenses, put it that way. You know? mm-hmm. um, and they have a good range of lenses that fit that mount. Uh, the 50 is excellent. I believe it's a Biogon design. Um, I don't have one, although I like using them. I would, I'm on the hunt. Uh, the 65 is pretty great. It's not as sharp as the 50, um, but it does have the advantage that it's it's limited by this little plastic tab that you can pop off and make it a 65 f4, which is not good at point light sources. It flares like crazy until about f6. Um, but yeah, it's physically very tiny and very robust. I've only broken one of them so far, which is really just I let my friend uh, drink in my studio while showing him some things. And then he picked up a camera body without, uh, closing the mount and dropped it at five and a half feet onto the concrete. Um, (laughs) which, okay. It it could have been stronger, but, uh, yeah, that's my favorite lens on the Bronco pan. Um, I borrowed Nick Lyle's 75 millimeter, um, which is an excellent lens and really sharp. It's maybe my favorite on the homunculus. I had to send it back to him, unfortunately. But um, yeah, I have nothing bad to say about that lens, except that it is physically huge and a pain to carry around. Well, uh, which just, just leads. I was just going to say, well, in, in terms of size, though, uh, the, the sixty-five and the fifty, uh, there's a huge difference in size. Yes, um, as well. Tiny. Yeah, and it's uh, what, what's and you say it's an F four, the sixty-five, or can be F four. Um, yeah. Whereas, yeah, the the. The 50 is a, I can't remember, it's either a 6.3 or 6.3. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's a big lump of a lens. And I, I'm just wondering, mm-hmm. is, is that possibly down to uh, its image circle? When you say that some lenses cover a larger uh, um, image circle than others, I just wonder if that's part of the reason why this is so much bigger. So that may be part of it. I don't know offhand what, what the 50 covers, but also I think it's a totally different design. I think... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Biogon design uses a bunch of bigger lens elements that wind up making a much sharper image by like yeah. more than twice. Um, the 65 is relatively simple and I am always happy to make the trade off, particularly because I'm always shooting between F8 and F16. Um, that is perfectly sharp for me. I'm, I'm willing to make the trade off because it's just so small and compact. And I, you know, I don't use camera bags. I just either wear it like a necklace or uh, throw it in the top of my backpack uh, with you know, pots and pans and whatever in there. Um, and so having something relatively small is, is useful to me. Um, yeah, but I, I think it's more, I, I don't actually know what the design of the 65 is, even though I use it all of the time. But I assume it's something, something kind of old, like a Tessar or something. Perry, yeah, it's a, it's a four element, um, so probably some kind of Tessar. Yeah, but it's it's wide angle, right? And I assume that oh, Tessars wait, are not right. It, I'm I, reading I think that it's, it's a, a topogon. Yeah, uh, but what I'm, is a topogon, right? Like it, you know, we yeah. could we could say like planar or whatever, but ultimately yeah. that's a double Gauss um, mm-hmm. topogon. I've never, you know, <laughs> who, whose whose term is that? <laughs> But hold on, I thought I thought a topogon was um, like the sort of Orion twenty eight millimeter f six. It's like a symmetrical four element, uh, huh. right? So it, it kind of looks like a an almost like an eyeball. Yeah, it yeah, does. So. It does 
like an eyeball. I didn't realize that it was a symmetrical lens. If it is, I mean, I'm working on building a bunch of symmetrical lenses right now uh, to take advantage of some things that I uh, can buy off the shelf. Uh-huh. Rather, I, you know, you guys talked to Jason about this, which was an intense podcast. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I have access to ZMAX and have used it. Um, I have some friends who are optical engineers as well. But being able to design a lens versus being able to manufacture a lens is a totally different yeah. thing. Um, however, I've been taking advantage of a lot of uh, sort of front to back, not optical symmetry, but physical symmetry in some basic lens designs, which means that, you know, if you can't control the index of refraction or perfectly the curvature, often you can still build a symmetrical lens that's pretty good. So, yeah, maybe, maybe I'll get into that although off-the-shelf lenses generally don't have the curvature of that 65 but yeah we'll we'll get into that later <laughs> that, that would explain why it's so compact though because lenses with this design are usually very very pancakey yeah. um because i can I only think of the lenses. yeah me too um the the ryan 28 f6 that i mentioned and i also think the nikkor 25 f4 um mm. is this design and they are all extraordinarily compact Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so I, what you, yeah. No, go, on. go ahead. I was just gonna say, so what you sort of sacrifice in edge performance, you you get the extremely compact, slightly slower um, optical package. Yeah, and you know, I think if you're going to shoot, I'm not shooting really. I mean, I'll shoot landscapes while I'm backpacking, but I'm not setting up a tripod and like you know, being like Alex Burke or Ben Horn here. You know, just sort of snapshots documentary of my life type of thing and uh at f16 is it's fine right? I'm, I'm not bothering to focus <laughs> um yeah i i'm i'm a big fan of pancake lenses i have a few on my list um i actually might be blasphemy for your podcast but i just ordered a samyang 35 2.8 uh for my sony a7 because i don't oh, have that lens yeah yeah i think like i don't care what it's quality is what i do care about is uh that it'll just fit in my pocket <laughs> that's it yeah that's one of the only autofocus lenses that i have and it's covered in dust right now because i don't think i've used it in <laughs> so <laughs> long yeah yeah i just bought a bargain one from keh i assume that i will with no lens cap throw it in the back of my backpack and get it on a plane soon so th- there is an interesting point here that simon was um kind of alluding to a little earlier with the difference in size uh, with different fields of view, mm-hmm. because if you think of a lot of like the popular go-to lens designs for different focal lengths mm-hmm. uh, on 35 mil and equivalent, you do often, for example, get like, for example, 28 millimeter F2 lenses. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, most of the ones I've seen are disproportionately large Yeah. Um, versus if you go up to 35, 40, uh, or even down to 25 and 21, they become much more compact. And yes. I, th- I think there's probably something there in terms of just what the most common lens designs are of those different uh, different fields of view that just correspond to larger sizes, you know? Hmm, well, what can I say on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Um, I have some favorites. I generally, like I, I have a Nikkor 28F2, which I almost never use. Um, I much prefer like a 28 2.8, which is mm-hmm. half the size physically. 
I keep one. I keep one for video work, you know, in a, in a briefcase when I have people to direct. But if I'm going walking somewhere, the Sigma Mini Wide is excellent. <laughs> no, it's it's a, it's it's a lens. We haven't, we haven't talked about the Sigma Mini Wide for quite some time, but that was a that's a lens that we've championed on this podcast many times before. It's not necessarily the the highest resolving lens by any stretch of the imagination, but it produces nice pictures. And I it think does. that really that's what matters, isn't it? I think so. Mm-hmm. And that I don't break it. Yeah. You know, I once slid down a cliff for like 40 feet in the Badlands National Park uh, up in the Dakotas with a Leica M4 and my Sumicron on my chest, just digging into the mud as I slid down like a like a cat. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, <laughs> they got to be tough. <laughs> Well, I've, I've, I think I may have the same page as that Perry's got open at the moment, because I've got all the um, Mamiya lenses listed in front of me, and we've we've gone through to seventy-five, and then uh, oh, yeah, sorry, I, I got no, distracted. No, no, I know all right. of them. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, well what, just this is a general general point. I mean, we'll go go through them, um, and, and they're interested to tell me what you know, what you know about them. But what's what's really surprising is just the range of lenses that are available there. I mean, there's what one, two, three, four, five, six, fifty to two fifty. Yeah, there's ten. It goes ten lenses. Fifty, sixty-five, seventy-five, ninety-three point five collapsible, ninety-three point five not collapsible, one hundred three point five, one hundred two point eight, which is also a double gauss, which is beautiful. Then there's the one twenty-seven, the one fifty, I believe, and the two fifty, and there might be a one eighty in there. Not sure. I made a finder for every Mamiya press lens yeah. that well, exists. There are two at 250, uh, one being an F8, which isn't rangefinder coupled. And then there's also an F5, which is apparently an Erno star type, hmm. which always sounds good. I don't really know too hmm. much about Erno stars, but in fact, I, that was actually a question that we had uh, put to us when we're we're going to possibly put that back to Jason Lane when he comes back as to what is an Erno star. Is it related, is it, it's related to a sonar, isn't it? But it's no, nice. yeah, yeah. The Erno stars were the uh, uh, precursor to the sonar designed by the same guy. Um, what's his name? Was it either Paul? I think Paul was. I, I'm, I'm going to Rudolph was one of the earlier ones, wasn't he? I think. Yeah, or Ludwig Vertaly. Um, but whatever. So, like, there are a lot of 90 millimeter lenses out there that are Ernestar designs, which is uh, so, like, the 92.8 uh, Contacts G, which is they call it a sonar, but optically it's it's an Ernestar design. Uh, the Hanukkah M Hexanon 92.8 is also an Ernestar. Um, so, yeah, it's basically the precursor to the sonar design. And and just going back onto the Mamiya lenses, uh, you've you've mentioned there that uh, there were two hundred millimeter lenses, and uh, yes. so one of them is the one hundred three point five, which is a, a Tessar type, um, yep. but there's also a Biotar type. Now you called it double gas, but we prefer Biotar because it usually okay. means something slightly different from a from a planar, which is also a, a double gas as well. I think it's marked planar, although I haven't seen it. Um, yeah, so I have the 103.5, although i got to lube the shutter. It's a little sticky right now in the cold. Um, I Again, just because of size and a little bit price, although they're not that different, maybe 150 bucks different. Um, I prefer the 102.8, but really I prefer the 93.5, which is the dirt cheapest one you can buy, which is 
it's my favorite on the homunculus. It has like a pretty wide field of view, maybe like a 40 on 35 millimeter. And yeah, it's collapsible. It's really small. Again, it's not nearly as sharp as the 100, but if I'm going to throw it in my bag or ride a bird scooter with it all day, it's, it's the thing. Um, yeah, I love that lens. I have a bunch of them. The first one I got, I bought for $43 with shipping from Japan <laughs> and rebuilt the shutter. Um, I can't say enough good about those lenses. I think they're really underrated, but you know, the, the pixel peepers out there will probably want the hundred or, or the portraitists. Um, I was going to say something else that just, just occurred to me as well is, mm-hmm. is the fact that it's, it's, yeah, more and more people are knowing about the 100 mm-hmm. 2.8 and and there's you know, lots of people like you know you say biotar and that just makes people gravitate towards them especially those <laughs> people that are you know adapting to digital and sure. something that i've i don't think i've ever actually seen anybody adapt any of these lenses to digital and i'm and well to mirrorless at least anyway um, because these these lenses are actually effectively mirrorless when they're on the native uh, press well, camera I- I don't think it makes a lot of sense, right? Because one, you're paying for the shutter and you can get a better lens cheaper without the shutter in it. And two, mm-hmm. they don't really resolve. Like if you're shooting mirrorless, like I have a Sony a seven that I bought a while ago. Maybe we'll get into that. Um, but like, you know, these days you'd get an a seven two or I would buy an a seven R two or some people are buying R threes already. And by the time I buy an R two, they'll be on the R five or whatever. Um, the resolving power is like really not there. Also, I prefer wide lenses. Like I shoot 95% of everything I shoot on, you know, 35 millimeter lens on 35 millimeter film or sort of the equivalent. Um, and so, you know, even, even converting longer lenses, it, it doesn't make much sense to me, right? They're physically larger because they're meant to cover huge pieces of film. Um, they're not as sharp as even, you know, some Rokinon lens you can buy pretty cheaply or, um, Kiev lenses we'll get into later. They do have a lot of character, but for me, you know, I, I, I have a, so on 35, I have a, uh, Elmerit 90 millimeter 2.8, which I love. It's one of the best nineties that I've ever seen, but you know, I will, I will take it everywhere. And only one in 10 trips, I'll actually mount it on my camera. And so <laughs> adapting, yeah. it's small. It fits in a sock in my backpack, right? I, I just bundle my socks around it. I don't have to think about it. It doesn't weigh very much. But, you know, adapting like Mamiya press lenses to even full frame, let alone, you know, LTM or uh, APS-C or get my acronyms mixed up, APS-C or micro four thirds. You know, now you've got like this telephoto lens, but. You know, to be honest, um, as much as I love these lenses, they have beautiful character. I think taking a small crop of them and blowing them up, there are better ways to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, that, I mean, that's that's a debate that's been going on for a long time, and I, I'm 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 largely with you on this, by the way, because you know, people sometimes ask me about why don't you just try and put that large format lens onto your Sony, and I explain to them, there's, I just don't yeah. see the point. Um, no point. Yeah, because I think it's the diff- I think there's sixteen times the image circle available that you're not using yeah. or some something ridiculous like that um but people do adapt bronica lenses hasselblad lenses um sure. and certainly quite a few of the uh, nikon shooters when they wanted to do get into the 
uh, adapted lens game they, because because sure. they had so fewer choices available to them because of the longer focal flange distance and a lot of those chose to go uh, into the medium format route. Um, I I, yeah. I do agree that putting the big hulking lens on to actually give you the same focal length as something that you could could be half the weight and and are you getting any kind of extra benefit for it is is is, is quite a dubious thing, um, but. As you were just saying there, though, you say that yeah, there are some lenses that that resolve better and whatever. Um, that sort of isn't the reason why we we tend to do this thing anyway. So when you actually mentioned that the lens has got character, then it's almost as if everything that you'd said prior to that is just forgotten well, because well, we want but, to know about the character. But the the character is also sort of over the the full frame, like taking taking like a little piece of it. The character is, you know, I mean, in terms of contrast. Or tone curve tonality is is still there, but like sort of like the fall off is very different. And I don't know, you know. So one of my favorite lenses is the Hasselblad eighty millimeter planar. Um, I use it all the time. It is excellent. Or or even the Kiev copy of it, I think, is even a little bit better. Although the Kiev bodies are terrible. Maybe we'll talk about that. And I've often thought about just a, adapting it to my Nikon, but you know, I have an eighty five one point two for Nikon and yeah, I just I don't <laughs> I don't see the purpose of using the Hasselblad lens in that case uh, on my Nikon's or my Sony's. Um, and again, you know, I barely. I, and I, I think maybe this would change if I were more of like a long portrait shooter. You know, I generally like to shoot environmental portraits on a thirty-five or a fifty on thirty-five millimeter or the equivalent to medium format. But you know. I would almost never use an 80 and I have a Hasselblad 50 millimeter, but I don't see any reason to put like a Distagon on my Nikon to shoot at 50 millimeters, right? Like yeah. Nikon makes excellent 50 millimeters. So, so does, you know, Leica or Canon, like it, it, I don't see the reason, right. And maybe for certain applications, right. So they made these shift stitching backs for, digital SLRs to, you know, if you were in a studio or shooting a landscape, make a four by five image out of uh, maybe 20 or 30 uh, full frame captures off of like a large format lens. Maybe that makes sense for certain things, wide, wide field astrophotography or something like that. But I don't know. I mean, all of those things seem pretty specialized to me and pretty cumbersome. I'm not really into <laughs> spending a lot of time taking any one photo. I, I kind of just like things to uh, hang off my neck and take a picture when something strikes my fancy type of thing. Yeah, I think I just, just uh, need to um, say something to those listeners that are adapting full-frame lenses onto Marker Four Thirds and the, and the APS-C. Uh, because it's it's only it's a very very similar uh, kind of argument in in, me, in many respects. You know, if you use a, a Biotaf, a Helios forty four on a on Micro Four Thirds, you're only seeing the center part of the image, and the, and and which is the best part usually. Well, or, th this this you know. this is it. But the other side of it is, as you've already you mentioned character. earlier, you're missing on what's going around around closer towards the edges, which is really where the the, the main interest is. But there's the, I think the difference there 
is that the the camera that you start off with in terms of like a micro four thirds camera it's not a large camera but it's still it fits your hand and and it's not actually that much smaller than say uh, a, a sony a7 or something like that um, so in terms of phys physicality there's not actually that much of a difference between using a full frame slr lens on a on micro four thirds than there is on full frame but there is a big difference when you take one of these really chunky six by nine lenses and putting it onto uh onto a full frame camera let alone um micro four thirds or something like that so that that's that's really where the, the i think that usability comes into it more than really the image quality that you're getting i think yeah. You know, what, what comes to mind that I think would be really useful is things like um, birders or wildlife photographers or sort of uh, anything where you need like a super long lens, right? If you have a micro four thirds camera and can buy yourself like a mm -hmm. 500 millimeter F8 reflex Nikkor type of deal, uh, that then becomes a really wild lens. Yeah. Um, like It makes sense. But I, I never shoot anything like that. I'm always uh, six to 12 feet away from whatever I'm shooting pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I think, I think we've, uh, we've run through, uh, Mamiya and you've got a whole list of lenses, uh, that you want to, uh, to oh, bring yeah. up into discussion. So what, what's, what's on your list then? Okay. It's a, it's a long one, but I'll go through it and see, see what you guys want to argue about. Um, there's a couple of my favorites. So, uh, my favorite lens of all time, I think, is the Nikon 35 f2. I have this in, you know, AF, AFD, and AIS, and I might even have a non-AI version somewhere in a briefcase. Um, mm -hmm. I love how that looks, and that lens yeah. sort of opened up me thinking about lenses differently. I, I've been using that since uh, more than 10 years ago. I really love it. Um, then, you know, the 51.8, like standard Nifty 50, sort of. Nikkor AF lens that everybody has. Um, I've got a 51.2 that I have mixed feelings on. I have an 85.12. These are all uh, Nikon AIS. Um, 85.12, I really love when I use it, but it's almost never. It's like the size of a softball, and I pretty much keep it in a video, in a in a case until I shoot video with it. Um, I've also got a 105.25, a 135.28, and a 80-200 push-pull with fungus in it that I use. Also, basically, just for video and studio work, I never take them out of the house. Um, we should talk about maybe the 20mm 2.8 Nikon versus the same in Canon. The Nikon being excellent, uh, which I don't own anymore, uh, or the Canon being one of the worst lenses of all time, but I keep one for shooting my friends' houses when they sell them. Uh, <laughs> it's my real estate lens. I use it for absolutely nothing else, just Airbnb and, and home sales listings. <laughs> um, and I have, like, I have a Canon 5D Mark II, when I, which I bought when it was new, and a bunch of really terrible like Canon lenses that sound like, ee, ee, ee. <laughs> they're just like plasticky and the worst things to use, but I use them quite a bit. Um, so, the, uh, wait, wait, so I'm going to pause you there. Cause this is a huge yeah. list of lenses to digest. Um, oh, I'm not even a third of the way there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's work through this chunk by chunk. Okay. Um, the Nikors, uh, first of all, there's a couple that I want to, a couple things you mentioned that I do want right. to highlight here. Nikon. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Nikon, Nikkor, um, 35 F2. That's a, that's a really nice lens. I think the Nikon mount aside, uh, to me, 35 F2 is like the 
most important focal length and aperture. I agree, hundred uh, percent. Pair. Uh, I have. We more. haven't gotten to my thirty-five millimeter Summicron, but yeah. I, okay, yes. let's definitely get there later. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, thirty-five f two. I have so many lenses of that spec, and I, I think, too. you know, if you told me I could only shoot with one lens for the rest of my life, it would hundred percent be a thirty-five f two. Yes, I agree. Yeah. Cool. We're on and the you same know, page. It's interesting though because when I when I first started getting serious into photography. Um, I found 35 millimeters kind of awkward because I was always shooting either longer lenses to pick out and isolate a subject uh, or ultra wide angles to mm-hmm. get that sort of foreground, midground, background sweeping traditional yes. kind of landscape. And then as I, as I think I matured, um, the 35 became a focal length that I went from not really liking it because I, I wasn't really sure what it was for to, I can shoot everything with this. I really don't need anything else. I had a really similar experience. You know, when I first started, I really liked ultra wide stuff. I shot with a 28 on just about everything. Uh, My first camera lens on on my first like real camera, which I spent my life savings at, you know, 13 years old on was a uh, Vivitar 28 to 210, uh, like three, five to five, six, terrible autofocus Nikon lens. But, you know, I just used that at its two extremes. And so I was into shooting things at 28 and I was shooting things at 200 and pretty much everything at 28. And then, you know, I kind of got into Kiev's in my teens and bought even like the the 30 millimeter fisheye and just wanted everything to be super wide. (laughs) Um, but ultimately, you know, I found that I was, if I look back on those pictures now, just wasting a lot of space, right? I, I love environmental portraiture and, and yeah. sort of um, street photography, that sort of thing. But maybe I was not as close to things as I should have been. And I think there's still, you know, from my archives, some successful things at 28, but nothing really wider. Um, I think, I don't know why I bought the 35 F2, but I had it in uh, Rio de Janeiro when I was maybe 22, maybe I had it in college when I was 21, something like that. It took me a long time to finish college, which is another story. But I realized like if you shot that lens wide open and particularly the one that I had got like a really scratched front element, it just had this like beautiful look. I was unaware of the term bokeh at the time, you know, but just this sort of shallow depth of field and like butteriness with the ability, like everybody would look at those pictures, not being a photographer and say, wow, these are so sharp. And I would, I would say, no, 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 you don't understand. Like these are less sharp than whatever, you know, disposable camera you're shooting with it. The difference is they have like a sharpness contrast, right? Like there's some mm-hmm. things that are very sharp and there's some things that are out of focus. And so for years I just shot like almost everything at 35 wide open um, and I shot a lot of portraits like that. I still love that look, sort of like a close-up portrait. Uh, although I stop down a little bit more these days. But um, yeah, also the form factor of those lenses are not mm-hmm. too big, um, which matters to me quite a bit, at least yeah. 35 millimeter. And uh, Once you hit 1.4, the size balloons. Yeah, yeah. So I have coveted 35 1.4s. I have over the years bought two Nikon 35 1.4s neither are working i have one that was disassembled and reassembled incorrectly so it's only a macro lens and i have partially disassembled it in a drawer but i can't i gotta drill out some screws but 
ultimately, like, uh, I'm usually shooting them at f5.6 these days. I don't think I yeah. would use that lens too much. Because, I mean, uh, with, with 35 mil, especially if you're shooting environmental portraiture, it is the perfect focal length that lets you get close enough uh, that, you know, you can emphasize and have pretty much your whole subject in the frame without exaggerating them. Uh, yeah, no weird distortion. Context. Yeah. yeah, and also have enough context to make it not just, you know, like a 90 millimeter headshot type thing. So yeah. I, I think it's really ideal. I agree. I agree. I mean, I think there's like a lot of cameras that are sort of based around that lens that are, you know, uh, fixed lenses that I really love. Like, um, I won't buy one because they're expensive and finicky is the Hexar AF. I would oh, love yeah. to have one of those lenses on a different camera. So they um, do have that lens available off. Uh, if you just want the lens, they... The Konica UC Hexanon 35 f2 uh-huh. in LTM mount is basically that lens. I think yeah, I've got a Summicron. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, which yeah. version of the Summicron do you have? Uh, the Canadian one, the version one, version two, three, or four. Uh, got to be two. So it's got the little um, aperture. Th- so is the aperture control this little stick? No. So it's a it's a proper aperture ring proper aperture ring and it's got and it's, like the little it's uh, black. tab yes so is the focus tab uh short or long is it like it's, a 90 degree or like a 150 degree um what you mean the throw of the focus yeah, yeah the, the focus throw. um it's gotta be closer to 90 so that would probably be the version four which is the one that i have and is my favorite as well because uh, um, the version two and three are six element. The version four is seven element. Hmm. And the the most notable difference between the two and three are optically identical. Hmm. Um, and the, the most notable difference is the aperture ring is cut slightly differently. Um, and then the throw. So basically the version four, the focus throw goes from like, if you're looking at the front of the camera, it goes from hmm. like uh, eight o'clock to four o'clock. Whereas the version two goes... Sorry, the version three and two goes from like eight o'clock to maybe three or two o'clock. Hmm. Good. I, I gotta grab it to look at it. Um, I, I'm not such a uh, spec freak as you, but I love how it looks, and yeah. um, it, it it is a really short throw. I bought it. Um, it came with a uh, like M4 that I bought, which was also I think a Canadian. Uh, no, I don't think that. Uh, I gotta look at it. <laughs> I haven't played with it in quite a while, but um, yeah, the the lens is definitely a Canadian Summicron. Um, nice. I really love how small it is. You know, mm-hmm. I I might swap. Like if I hadn't gotten such a good deal on it, and I, if I was just going to buy one now, I'd probably buy like a Voigtlander thirty five one four. I think those are really great lenses as well in the same form factor, but. Um, in that I own it already, uh, yeah, it's way nicer. The the thirty five Summicron and M four is pretty much my favorite setup these days. Yeah, it's my favorite setup for sure. It's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not just the size because the 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 Hexanon we were talking about the UC is pretty much the same size. Um, yeah, but it it just looks it, so nice. Yeah, the the Summicron is uh, slightly better performing, but I think the Voigtlander I wouldn't consider it a, as a replacement. You know, they have the new F two Ultron, which looks kind of interesting. 
No, but it's, uh, it's not a, like a replacement. It's like uh, if if I were to go out and buy one today, right? So I bought my okay. M4 with uh, a bunch of lenses, including that one for $1,200, right? Oh, if I were to today have the cash, right, and have to go out and buy one, yeah. I would not buy an M4 for the price, and I would not buy the Summicron. I would buy like a Bessa R2A, uh, even though it's maybe a little finicky, but I think it's it's got a good finder, which is really important to me. Mm-hmm. And uh, my buddy Han had a 35-1.4 Voigtlander. I really loved how his pictures looked, and he let me use that here and there before he lost it somewhere in his room, uh, which was amazing to me. But, um, you know, uh, yeah, it's uh, I, I think it's a, a good one. It's got a good build quality, right? Like, I don't know. Uh, maybe it's not as sharp, but it's it's a dense metal small lens. Yeah, and it's I don't know. Cheap. It is it is really good bang for your buck, but I have a yeah. love hate relationship with that lens because I've bought it, I've bought and sold it maybe three or four times um, <laughs> because I, I just do it to prevent myself from buying the Sumalux. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it, I, it. I mean, the focus shift is atrocious, and I personally just really don't like the way that it looks, mm-hmm. uh, especially between one point four and f two. But Ooh, I think I love you know, how it looks. Yeah, it's it's you know, and it, I think personal taste comes in at that mm-hmm. point. Okay. Um, but to me, the thing, actually, the thing that bothers me the most about it is the handling. Um, because even though it's really beautiful and small, the focus tab is just a little bit too small, and the aperture uh, tabs are a little bit too big, so that when I'm focusing with it, I always accidentally change the aperture, and it drives me mm-hmm. nuts. Um, I. So my Summicron doesn't have any tab on the aperture. It just has a tab on the focusing ring, which, yeah. you know, within the first two years that I bought it, I had cracked that tab in half and had been meaning to 3D print myself another hot pink one, you know, for the... the oh, I cracked mine too. But yeah, I cracked mine too and just super glued it back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also super glued mine, but it <laughs> fell off again. And it's, it's you know, it's too small for my hands, but... Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm talking about the Voigtlander with the tab that's too small and the aperture, uh, the mm-hmm. wings are too big. And so no, I, that, I know. Yeah. I'm saying the Sumicron, Sumicron has, a, uh, it could use a, it could use a handle like the size of a screwdriver on it. If you ask me, <laughs> but it would kind of defeat the, the pocket ability. Yeah. Um, I'm glad you like that one so much. It's, it's my favorite. Um, yeah, I think it's my favorite too. Oh, Simon's in there going like, "Oh my God, rangefinder talk again." I was, I was hey, going to say, to... John, John is not here, and we've just reverted. <laughs> what's what's going on? Uh, well, I, I, I like some SLR lenses, but we should probably talk about some other excellent yeah. uh, thirty-five millimeter rangefinders and point and shoots while we're on the topic. <laughs> no, 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 no. we I'm going to ask you um, about a couple of the. Uh, Quick ones here. The first one oh. being uh, your the Nikon uh, 105 2.5. Uh, nice. Which version? Uh, non AI. Hey, excellent, excellent. A good one. The, the good one. Um, that's that's good news. And uh, just for, for for newcomers, that's the, uh, the the sort of sonar variant that we like on this show. Not that there's anything wrong with the later one. We just we just like the one with more aberrations and things. We'll see. Mm-hmm. Aberrations are good. Um, oh, it's so beautiful. The rendering on that lens is just stunning, you know. Yeah. You know, I could care less. I I use that lens almost 
never. I use it for, for some video work, right? But like, yeah. it's not a focal length that I ever use. I never ever throw it in my camera bag. I keep it in a briefcase full of like my video kit. Um, and once in a while, oddly, I might use it for like, uh, and and very rarely, but I might use it for like a tabletop studio setup for just yeah. product photography for like eBay or uh, or my website, you know. Um, which it is not what you want, right? You want like the most modern, just sharp, flat, <laughs> boring lens for product photography. You know, I don't want to introduce character in, in my white background, knockout shots. But um, yeah, I mean, I think that lens is super beautiful. I love looking at like, it's it's such an amazing portrait lens, but I never shoot with it. Like it is too long for me for portraits. <laughs> I like an 85 if, if I'm ever going to do that. But um yeah, I'd, I'd like, I don't, I never sold it. I keep it. I don't think I've used it in two years, to yeah. be honest. But, um, you know, for what it was worth at the time, I, I have like a collection. All of my Nikkors are just really beat up lenses that I probably bought to sell and realized they weren't worth anything at the time, maybe 10 years ago. And just said, like, uh, I might as well keep this in a briefcase, which is ultimately why I bought the Sony A7 when it came out. I was like, oh, I can use this entire briefcase of mixed lenses that I've collected. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I have nothing bad to say about that lens other than it's just not, not my cup of tea. For it, what I it's like to shoot. so funny that you say that too, because I'm exactly the same. I have three of that lens. Maybe you're um, my evil twin. <laughs> and yeah, I, I never used it. I have three of them and I think I've used each one once. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's just like, eh, it's a little too big. Don't like the focal length. The images yeah. are great. Every time I put it on my Sony and take test pictures of my cat, I'm like, oh, this lens is amazing. Yes, yeah. if, if I liked 105, that would be my favorite lens. Uh, the same with the 135-2.8. I have actually had a 135 f2, which I just bought and sold, which was amazing. But again, like that was too expensive a lens to keep for the fact that I have used that maybe once in 10 years, <laughs> even less than the 105. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in exactly the same boat, although uh, I had three not that long ago. I sold my LTM version, which I think I just bought simply because I just had to buy it. Um, yeah. And uh, I think I've actually got a, a 105 2.5 mm -hmm. for sale at the moment. And so, and I've got one in the cupboard, which I don't use either. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> at, at some point I know I will and um, yeah. the problem is I have other competing lenses as well in, around that focal length which I also never use as well so <laughs> who knows when it's going to get used but uh, yeah ex exactly the same boat now you I couldn't remember whether you said 55 or 50 millimeter 1.2 and then you had mixed feelings tell, yeah tell so okay so I love the 50 1.8 uh, the autofocus D is like a great, great performer, right? They're worth nothing. They're light and plasticky. I have shot some of my favorite images over the years. You know, it's one of the first Nikon lenses I bought. I think it was the, the second lens I bought actually uh, ever. I must have been 16 or something like that. Um, I think that lens is sharp and flat and super modern and really reliable. Um, I have, which was another lens that I bought to sell and was like, oh, this is too beautiful, even though it was worth, you know, a good amount of money back then. I don't know what they'd go for, three, four hundred bucks these days is a 51.2. And I've kept it and it's kind of like wide open. It's got some weird focus shift and it's annoying on um, an SLR. And I pretty much never 
uh, sometimes I use it on my F3, but uh, really it, it comes into play in video on my A7 or even on my 5D Mark II. And, you know, if you want that look, uh, it's a once in a while lens, but it, it gets way more use than the 105. Um, it is it is beautiful. Um, I think right now I'm using it as a body cap for a Fuji S2 that's sitting on my shelf that I used to use for uh, like internet uh, sales. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, it's really beautiful. I almost never walk around with it because if I'm walking around, I'm going to shoot it, you know, F8. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it's just like bigger and heavier and not as sharp as the 518, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, not that like sharpness is everything, but you know, if, um, so my, my buddy had a baby or his wife had a baby and like asked me to shoot some like, you know, family portraits for their Christmas card, which is, uh, my passion in art is shooting your family <laughs> Christmas cards. No, but I, I love those guys. And so I went down there and I, I did that. Um, I actually shot a bunch of film on a Kiev because I had been repairing it earlier that day. But you know what I used to shoot their Christmas card was the 51 two that, I mean, I shot it wide open, blurred their crappy uh, backyard. It was all filled with brambles. Uh, but it looked, you know, like a nice fall day, <laughs> like your like good Christian Christmas card should look. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, that's like if, if I've got to shoot any like semi formal portrait, that's that's my go to. I love it. But also I never use it for sort of personal work. Mm-hmm. And kind of the same with the 85 one, too, although that gets a little bit more video work. It's a weird little lens, right? Because. You know, I, I have one as well. Um, and I got to say, I, I think I prefer what? <laughs> um, it, I think I prefer the look of the 55 2. Uh, and obviously, the Knock Nikkor 58 2, I tried it a couple times. Uh, and it is beautiful at night. But this 50, you know, in all kind of, I guess, objective measures, it outperforms the, uh, the 55. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it, I don't know how to describe it. it. It's one of those lenses where when I take like random test shots with it wide open on my Sony, I really, really like it. Yeah. Um, and then when I actually try to do actual photography with it, it it's kind of, you stop not, it down to the point where it's pointless to have such right. a softball full of glass in your hand. Yeah. I almost prefer to use the 1.8 series E lens. Yes. Yes. The 1.8 E is like it's pancakey, it's well. It's so underrated. Light. It's super sharp. It's very yeah. flat. It's yeah. like if I want a fifty, that's what I want to use for you know, like street photography or backpacking or whatever. But uh, you know, if, if you're shooting somebody's holiday card, it's, that's the time for the one twos to shine. Right. The only reason want- I don't really like the fifty five is it's just a little too long for me. You know, even mm-hmm. a fifty is a little too long for most of the things I want to shoot. Mm-hmm. I just have sort of a preference for thirty five or you know forty. But, yeah, um, that that series E gets a really bad rap, um, and I I don't know why. I really like that lens. Yeah, I mean, I think the E and the AF and the AFD are they're great. You know, I I have a bunch of uh, F one hundreds, which is also a very underrated camera. Um, like the the early AF versions of the thirty five F two and the fifty one eight are usually what I will carry with me if I take those or you know, even some digital cameras. Simon, do you know why the Series E 51A gets gets dissed so much? Because it came on an EM, and the EM is the worst camera that Nikon ever made. <laughs> the, 
there's a, well, there's a few things about the about the about the EM, um, which we had great fun when uh, Carl uh, bought an EM, um, uh, and uh, because that was the that was the camera uh, that was made for women. Um, was it? Oh yes. What? Yes. Um, I'm the not, camera dactyl not... bronco pan is made for women. <laughs> yeah, but, um, <laughs> and uh, and uh, for those people, those camera. those people horrified of what I've just said there. Um, I'm just just saying that's that is exactly what it was back in those uh, unenlightened days. Um, and uh, they can't decide that they weren't they hadn't broken into the female market enough, so they made a simpler camera so that women can use them. Um, oh my god, <laughs> that's that that's was their, that was their logic. Uh, and actually, there's a that, there's a there's a Canon fixed um, lens camera which went out there that um, and the advert was actually, there are adverts out there. It was like so easy a woman can use it. It was. <laughs> so, uh, so, uh, like I say, this this does not represent the views of the Classic Lenses podcast. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, Carl bought one, so uh, we we teased him incessantly uh, when he when he bought a, a Nikon EM for that for that reason. Um, so uh, yeah, see, well, it's just one Series E. Uh, it doesn't say nickel. Um, that is obviously means means a lot in the you know for your photography. If it doesn't say Nikkor on it, it can't be a good lens, and therefore you can't be a good photographer. It's so. also sort of plastic bodied, although I think well made. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, no, there's, there's I mean, there's, there's just nothing wrong with them. Uh, it's it's I've I've got it in my head actually that the that the Series E fifty mil carried on. Anyway, and that actually became yeah. the the nickels anyway. In when it went into autofocus, um, I've got that in my head um, because they they had the there were also two versions, two nickel versions. One of which they would call the actually no, it's more than two, but uh, you got one that uh, would when I get one and sell it, I always sell it as a long nose um, because it's a way of uh, getting more money for it. Um, but I think it's got an extra element in there as well. Um, and uh, thinking about it, I think if I get one which is a short nose, I'll call that a short nose because that makes it sound exotic as well. <laughs> um, but no, there's, there's 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 nothing wrong with those lenses. They they they're good lenses, and especially if you're using them on film, then they're, they're absolutely fine. And I think if it's this thing about obsessing over pixel peeping and things like that, and there's just no need to. They 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 just good lenses, simple as that. Okay, uh, Ethan, I need to ask you about. Another lens you mentioned, because uh, you said Nikkor eighty five. You said okay. Nikkor eight eighty five one point two. Yes, I've been wanting yes. to ask that as well. I, 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 I didn't know that exists. Does that? I don't think that lens exists. Hang on, is it an does it? I'm pretty sure it doesn't exist. I'm I'm with you, Perry. I'm I'm sticking. Back, back, back in the day when I used to shoot Canon, uh, we would always give the Nikon users tons of shit. Because it was like, yo, we have an 85 1.2, and you don't. You only have an, a 1.4, and therefore you suck. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe it's a 1.4. Yeah, I think there's a good chance of that. Let me go grab it. Um, can can we take a pause for one yes. second? We certainly can. Um, I'm, I'm going to go grab this thing. Give me give me a minute. I got my briefcase of lenses I should have brought out. Okay. One second. I'll be right back. Oh, that sounds <laughs> okay. I am back. <laughs> that was that sounded like a bunch of stuff rolling on the floor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, so you were right, Perry. It is a eighty-five one. Are, are we recording? Yeah, yeah. Keep going. 
yeah, it's an 8514. You are right. Um, one of the reasons why I don't use it as a, as a dented filter ring, I have not yet been able to remove, but will. Um, yeah, so I have bought and sold two Canon, or maybe three Canon 8512, uh, the the original autofocus ones. One I bought for like $200 that was broken. It wouldn't autofocus. I banged it on a table. It worked perfectly. Sold it for like 12 <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they look beautiful, but oh, Canon autofocus is oh, man. terrible. And, and that I, one's focused by wire. Yeah. It's, yeah. ugh. Um, yeah. The 8514, though. Again, I probably use it at 2.8 um, for portraits, but. Uh, it, it rarely gets used. Um, I think I took it with me to shoot that uh, Christmas card and never put it on my camera. But yeah, it's a beautiful lens. We, we were just saying um, in our little chat beforehand, it's, uh, I, I hope it is a, a, a 1.4, but it'd be pretty embarrassing if you came back and actually you know, yeah. 0.2 was an F2. No, well, embarrassing for me. How could I not <laughs> know all the, the same lenses as my lens twin? <laughs> right. I th oh, I was going to say, I thought we got to the end of that list, but there's just um, I just need to touch upon just, uh, you mentioned just how bad the 20 millimeter Canon F, um, Oh, yeah. 20 mil uh, i'm assuming that's f that's fd we're talking about there um so what so what's so bad about it oh it's soft as it's a dog of a lens it's huge it's like twice the size of the nikkor um let's see what is oh no no, no it's it's autofocus it's yeah oh the ef uh, oh yeah that lens sucks yeah it's super bad i own like I would have. I think I bought it when I was planning on buying a 5D Mark II, but they hadn't come out yet, and so I had um, like a Rebel XTI or something like that, which I later bought another one to make a 3D camera. But that's another story. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I used this on that, and it's oh, a dog of a lens. It's really, really bad, but it's perfectly fine for shooting, you know, uh, images to rent somebody's house. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, well let's let's uh, um, do the next tranche, uh, and I'll let you stop at a, at an appropriate point of uh, lenses, and we'll uh, we'll work through the next list. Okay, um, I still have a couple of Nikon's <laughs> that I love. You you want me to yeah, skip yeah. those? Yeah, no, no, okay. no. You can go talk, for it. Talk, yeah. um, so I have a let's see. I think this is eighty two hundred two eight. Uh, AF Nikkor. It's an ED, but not a D type, I believe. Um, and it's push pull. So, like, the focus ring and the zoom ring is together and it's got a little fungus in it. And uh, I think this is like the worst version. I like the two touch version much, much better. Um, but again, like, it's, it's useful once in a while. <laughs> um, uh, it gets almost no use. Um, what other Nikon lenses do I? Oh, I know what Nikon lenses I love. So the 22.8, um, I've bought and sold plenty of them. And I had a friend who used one almost exclusively on his uh, N90. And I think that, like, it's amazing how the AF version of that versus the Nikon or the Canon EF version is like, they're so drastically different uh, in how they look uh, and how big they are. Um, it's it's like the only one between like the Nikon AF and the Canon EF 
that is just wildly different. I don't know why that is. If it's a different design, it, it must be. Um, but yeah, the Nikon 22.8 is superb. Um, then I have like, I have some lenses that, uh, are not liked by people like the Nikon AF 35 to 70, 33 to 45. I think that's an excellent lens. I used a couple of them, you know, just as my everyday walk around lens and maybe the mid 2000s. Wait, wait. Are you talking about the autofocus lenses here? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, skip, skip those. Skip those. Okay. Nobody likes that. <laughs> well, well said. We don't need that. Okay. Okay. That one is underrated, though. It's like it's reasonably sharp. It's reasonably bright. It's small and compact. Um, I think they're like worth $13 or something like that. <laughs> People should check them out. Uh, they're, they're great. Um, I have a bunch of like Canon versions of that lens that are also dogs, uh, but I still use them because they're small. I have a, a 35 to 70 uh, Canon EF that has like a wobbly front element. So I have to like put my finger on the front of the lens and like push the element. So it's seated to take a sharp picture, which I don't <laughs> always do. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, I have half a dozen micro Nikkor 55s, either the 3.5 or the 2.8, both of them. I think those are amazing. I used mm. one on like a APS-C sensor for, I don't know, half a decade for shooting everything that I put on eBay. Um, they're, you know, wildly sharp and um, flat. And I still use them for like uh, DSLR scanning and some product work. Um yeah, I, I think those are also like at some point I was buying them for like twenty to thirty five dollars a piece, even for the two eights. Um, you know, I don't take them as like a walk around lens. I don't sort of need that sort of performance, and I like the extra light of a fifty one eight. But but you've got half a dozen of them. Yes. Well, so when they were cheap, because I used it as an everyday lens, and I like, drop things or like hand a twenty year old kid, uh, you know, Fuji S three or S two and one of them to shoot things on white backdrops to list on eBay. I just, you know, I would just put them in a bag. I have like a, like a postage bag filled with six of them in, in my closet, just as I break them because they get, they get a lot of use. I, uh, I bring them out. They're just, you know, they're, they're an office tool for me. Um, okay. Yeah. They're not like, they're not like what I create my art with, but uh, they're like, <laughs> If, if you need the best pencil in the world, right? Like that's the Nikkor 55.35 or 2.8. I think my grandpa used that lens when he was a photographer all the time. But um, yeah, great lens. Highly recommended for technical work. Okay. So uh, what else? What else is on that list? Um, in Nikon mount, I have the Sigma 28 mini wide. I got a, a few of those in like different rebranded whatever's right they they were you know, maybe ten dollar lenses at one point you know, Quantaray and sigma and uh w- yeah. whatever they they turned up all over the place yeah um let's see i, I think those are really small and, and reasonably well built and they were almost free so if you're gonna throw a camera in a backpack with no lens cap on it that's that's what you want. <laughs> um, I like using them on like FEs and FM and small cameras like that. Um, let's see. I also have, <laughs> this was another lens that I bought that just wasn't worth selling. I have no idea how I came by it. Um, a Tamron Adaptal uh, 90 millimeter uh, macro, which will focus like 
super close. Um, and then I also have like a 2825 and I use the same adapt hall adapter because I only have one of them. I'll use that on the Nikon F when I take that around. Two, um, I was just going to say two really good lenses there. Um, surprisingly good. Yeah, I think that given that I probably bought them for five bucks a piece. Yeah, the, t the Tamron primes are in general terms, I think they're excellent. I can't, I don't, I can't think of a dud Tamron yeah. prime. I think it probably gets a bit weaker at the wide end, but then again, most lenses of, of you know, in the eighties and what's whatever at the wide end were, were passable rather than being uh, exceptional. I think that's something where modern lenses have really come on. Uh, I agree. But, yeah. But certainly from 24 millimeter all the way through to uh, 300 millimeter, I've never actually tried the mirror Tamron mirror lens um, or lenses. Not sure if I did two of them, but uh, that's uh, 90 mil 2.5. I used to love using that on mm -hmm. four thirds. Um, because have you got the extension on that? I do. I, well, it's like a teleconverter, right? That makes it into a 180. Uh, I went to Hawaii. Well, yes and no. I was going to say, because there's two, there are two things that, that there's a, there's a flat field teleconverter and there's also just a, a straight through tube. Um, I think they both ultimately achieved the same thing, but of course, you know, you don't actually need to have glass if you just extend it and if you have the the correct extension then you're you're going to keep your image quality rather than knocking it through another five elements or so that are in the teleconverter so yeah but then it, i mean like in terms of macro sure but i'm i'm using that macro lens not for macro but for like i went to hawaii in 2017 it was the last state i hadn't been to i think i just took uh the 28 and the 90 with the teleconverter and, and an icon f and that was it yeah and it, you know uh it's great I, I rarely use the teleconverter but um yeah it's I, I think that those are surprising right that's i think the only teleconverter that i still own um it just lives on that lens yeah really surprisingly nice and they feel nice too you know they're they're all metal bodied and the focus is well damped yeah yeah, no, I'm a, I, I like, well, I've, I've said it many, a few times, uh, Tamron Primes. I think they're absolutely excellent. Mm -hmm. okay. I agree. Okay, so what else we got? Okay. Um, you're not going to like this because we're going back to uh, range finders. <laughs> um, <so laughs> I was going to say, Perry's just unmuted himself. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so back when I bought and sold cameras, I've been like a Nikon guy since you know, the 50s when my grandpa bought a Nikon F and my dad on the other side, right? this is my, my mom's father was a professional photographer and my dad is a hobbyist for most of his life and his dad. Anyway, um, they always shot Nikon and so I had access to Nikon and I bought my first Nikon, which was an N60, which is terrible camera. Um, but, you know, I've been, I've been into Nikon lenses for a long time and I love them. But um, at some point, I bought a bunch of Leica equipment with the hopes of selling them, which I did for most of it. But I, I, I was in Rochester, New York, which was a really, you know, oh. I, I used to go on like many month trips and I would just buy cameras for weeks and weeks, if not months, and ship them back and then, you know, clean them and sell them. And I bought um, from like a studio portrait photographer who also sold me a bunch of RB equipment. Um, he had as like his personal camera, an M4 with a 35 F2 Summicron, a 
50 millimeter Canon 1.2 uh, screw mount with an adapter and an uh, what is it? 92.8 Elmerit, and I think I had an M2 at the time. And when I bought that, I just sold the M2, and I have never sold any of those from that kit. And I use that kit basically as is, plus a seven body sometimes. Um, what what version of the 90 Elmerit? Um, I do not know. It's it's a relatively new one. It's also like oh, is it the Canada. is it the uh, Elmerit M with the built-in hood? Um, no, no, it is not. So not it, then it would be the Tele Elmerit, right? Yes. Is it the fat or the thin? Thin. It's like oh. a real pencil type of lens. Right. That looks like the LMRC. Oh yeah. I, I hate that lens. Um, it's so <laughs> sharp. It's so sharp guys. Really? Um, yeah. I've had the, two and they were both ass at F 2.8. Oh, um, mine is the like fat one was it. much. The fat one is much sharper. Uh, mm. The thin one, I mean, I, oh, it flared like a bitch, and yeah, that was my least favorite Leica lens that I've ever owned. Well, so I almost never use it. Again, I keep it um, capped and inside a bundle of socks when I go backpacking. It's pretty much the uh-huh. only time I take it out. Um, I t- took it all over Southeast Asia, but I don't think I used it once on that trip. Um, but yeah, generally I'll shoot like a telephoto landscape with it once mm-hmm. in a blue moon. Um, I think it is the sharpest lens I own, even more than the micro Nikors. Um, yeah, it's what? it's really what? nice. Okay, okay. Can we can we take one more second? I'm going to run to the garage and just grab it so so that we uh, know what we're talking about here. Okay. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Well, one second. <laughs> I should just bring everything in here. My internet's not as good in the garage. I'll, I'll, I'll be right back. Okay. So I'm back from the garage, and I'm I'm sure this is not a lens that I use all the time, but I do take it with me and never open the bundle of socks. But it is the Tele Elmerit 90 millimeter 2.8. Um, again, you know, I'm probably using it stop down to shoot a landscape that's far away when I'm using it, but. Um, yeah, I think it's really small. It's really well built. It's very um, small. If it was worth a lot of money, I would have sold it a long time ago. And just like, because I, again, like, it's my least used focal length. I really only use three, right? It's like a 35, a 50, and a 85 or 90. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it's really, mine is really sharp, really flat. Um, yeah. I don't use it because it has a ton of character. I use it, you know, for reproducing landscapes here and there. So, um, I mean, aside from, you know, our, our difference in opinion about that lens, mm-hmm. I, I think it is quite interesting that uh, it sounds like you um, and I've heard Simon mention this, and it's definitely the case for me, but it sounds like for all three of us that our preferred landscape lens is a telephoto yeah, I mean, I shoot a lot of 35 and 50 yeah. landscapes, but, you know, if you're like, I wind up on a mountaintop pretty often and mm-hmm. you're looking at like other mountaintops, they tend to be pretty far away, at least out here. Um, yeah, yeah the, the 90 is what's up. Yeah, because I will often chuck a um, an 85 F4 Teletessar or a 90 mm-hmm. F4 uh, Elmar into sure. my bag and and. Pretty much the only time they get use is 
if I want like close up shots of riot police or landscapes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <coughs> you should be doing the close up shots of riot police with a twenty. <laughs> I I have done it with sure. a twenty eight. I got one photo blurry picture of uh, a riot police tapping my camera with her uh, baton. Oh, <laughs> not not too not too keen on doing that yeah. again. Yeah. yeah, but but you know the the traditional um, the traditional view is that landscape lenses have to be wide angle. Uh, but I I certainly prefer the sort of exercise in picking out details uh, and sort of flattening that what people call compression, but just just picking out uh, a smaller field of view within a, a further perspective. So I mean, for me, it really depends. Like. I really much prefer wide angle stuff. And actually when I'm backpacking, I, I much prefer like smaller, more intimate landscapes. Like, um, so we've got in New Mexico, super volcanoes and giant, uh, big landscape, like, uh, mountaintops or these volcanic monadnocks, uh, about 30, 40 miles away from me in the Puerto Valley. There's, you know, just like, um, straight volcanic plugs. That was the throat of a volcano millions of years ago that stick up, you know, kind of like a Sergio Leone movie. And like those things you can't see up close. You have to be far to see them. Mm-hmm. And and so long lens is helpful. But we've also got, you know, slot canyons and caves and things like that, which I much prefer poking around in those when I'm backpacking. You know, often they'll have rivers, which is nice to have water out here. Um, and then I'll, I'll use a wider lens. Um, you know, the, the Elmeret is not a lens I ever would have bought, nor would I buy it again. Um, I don't know what they sell for. I, I probably, you know, I, I bought those three lenses in the M4 for 1200 bucks back a decade ago. Um, but yeah, I probably yeah. would not even own a 90 for my Leica if, if it didn't just come in that deal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's useful. Usually I nice. think I'd probably use it on the A7. The nice thing you got there is um, the 92.8 that you've got and the 35 both take 39 millimeter filters. Uh-huh. So so you can uh, you can double up there. I think that's all that's I missing is a zero 39 millimeter filters. Don't care. Uh, polarizer would be nice here and there, but like whatever. I just let them get scratched and uh, no, not for protection. I mean, I mean like a color filter for black and white film. Sure. Sure. Yeah, I'm too lazy. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, I get that, like, you know, a yellow filter is, is real nice, particularly for landscapes, but... Um, you just fix it in post, don't you? Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I shoot a lot of Kodak Gold when I when I get my hands on it, but... Um, yeah, I think, like, actually the most interesting lens that I bought in that deal, which I use all the time, um, and I have a love-hate relationship with it, is... The LTM Canon 512. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you yeah. guys have seen this yes, lens. Yes, I have that lens. Yeah, it's both beautiful and like a dog sometimes. Yeah. Um, again, it's not a lens that I would would buy. Like more often than not, I wound up using a Jupiter 8, which I've got a bunch of those. It's one of my favorite lenses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like it's hard on a rangefinder to hit perfect focus at one two. And Mm -hmm. the Jupiter is, I think, more pleasing. But um, this guy gets used on the M7 or or M7B, A7 quite a bit uh, because I can, you know, zoom in and focus it perfectly. But it's it's got that, like, buttery background. It's too low contrast for my taste. Super low contrast. Flary and, like, 
I think this is again a lens I would never buy again and would not have bought, you know, had I been shopping for a personal lens. But in that I had it, it's like, whoa, this is a one two that you know can easily fit in my pocket. It's tiny, yeah. and um, yeah, it's it's useful and nice, and I love it. But also, I hate the pictures that come out of it often. But I don't know, I I can't quit you, fifty one two. <laughs> it's it's a really interesting lens because number one, it's super good for gas satisfaction. Yes. Uh, <laughs> as far as fifty one point two rangefinder lenses goes, it's by far one of the cheapest. Yes. Uh, and you can still get them for a pretty good price, but, but a large part of that is because it's it's terrible wide open. It um, is. But every now and then, every now and then, you know, you nail a shot with it where the light is just right for that kind of look, and it can be beautiful. Yep. Um, so I, I think, yeah, with that lens, I'm with you. I think most of the photos I get out of it, I absolutely hate. But the ones that I do like, um, they look really good. You know, you can, especially if you put it on your Sony and you're in, in maybe a, a mixed lighting situation at night or something. Yep. Or or even indoors with window light that's a little bit further away. I think you can make it um, do nice sort of glowy things with with the right light. Yeah, uh, but if you I try mean, to shoot conventionally with it, it's crap. That yeah, I agree. Uh, that glowiness is nice for a portrait once in a while, and really, like it's too low contrast for me to really like shooting black and white with it. Um, where it shines is on the A7 in color, um, wide open in the middle of the day in the shade. Yeah, right, where there's yeah. like no flare, but just like a little glowiness. I'm I'm not into like soft focus lenses at all, but yeah. Um, yeah, I, I dig it. I can't quit it. I haven't been able to bring myself to sell it. And uh, yeah, um, it is. It's one of those rangefinder lenses that I do think works better on a Sony than a on a rangefinder yes, because not only you know is there the focus and the the look, but it balances perfectly on a Sony A7. Yep, it, it's like it was made for that size camera. So I yeah, agree. I'm with you on that. I, it balances nice. Um, I I used the M4, and I after I slid down that cliff in the Badlands, like the next week, I went out and bought a Canon P because uh, the M4 was worth a lot more by then, mm-hmm. and I had mud that I had to clean out of the body. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I use it a lot on the Canon P. It's, it's nice, but more often than not, I just use a Jupiter 8, which I think is an excellent lens. I've owned a lot of them, bought and sold them yeah. over the years, and I think I have two or three of them now. Um, yeah, I love those Russian lenses. So, so Jupiter eight as opposed to Jupiter three, then? Oh yeah, yeah. The Jupiter three is the one five. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. No, I've had those lenses. They suck. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I think, like maybe, maybe they only suck because the focus calibration was poor, and I could never get it quite there. And maybe I could have calibrated my camera to it. Um, maybe no, you can, you can't. Yeah, it's like ugh. Black. I mean, the it's been a while since we've talked about the Jupiter eight and three, but you one know, one of my I, favorite I, lenses or classic lenses podcast is to Jupiter and no further. It's one of your <laughs> very first. Yeah, that was a good one. It's <laughs> Daniel since then. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but you know the Jupiter three. Um, the, they're both sonar designs, but the a the the Soviet cam is cut slightly differently from the Leica cam so when you combine that with the uh, somewhat extreme focus shift of the Jupiter 3 it becomes very very difficult to nail focus on a LTM or Leica body 
Whereas, um, and, whereas the Jupiter 8 is perfect. In fact, I calibrated my, well, I calibrated my Canon P to the Jupiter 12, but um, they're very similar cam. And yeah, right. it's and, such a good lens and such a good value. And as long as you get the near focus and infinity, um, the the difference in cam cut makes less of a an impact with Jupiter 8 because uh, yes. number one, the f- degree of focus shift is less extreme because the lens isn't being pushed as much. Um, and number two, you, you, you just can't shoot at f1.5. So you don't have as, as extreme, you know, mm-hmm. uh, shallow depth of field, but, but I agree. I think the Jupiter A is, if you get a good one, it is an absolutely beautiful lens. Mm-hmm. Actually, mine lives on my Canon P. Um, but yeah, I, I've sold every Jupiter three that I've ever had because yep. <laughs> I mean, the other sonars are just nicer. Plus it, it feels, you know, they cost way more than the Jupiter eights, but they both feel kind of cheap and they both feel made out of this really cheap aluminium. Um, and in a Jupiter three, like, mine's just... made out of aluminum. <laughs> <laughs> so, before we started this podcast, Simon and I were having a discussion about precisely that difference in pronunciation. <laughs> it, it, um, it started off with what I was, what I was having for my lunch, uh, which is tomato soup. And I thought, I thought to myself, and then, and you, then you said tomato and, uh, I was thinking, mm, that's interesting. The, no, the I didn't say tomato, to say tom- I said potato. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, but there you go. Anyway, we we don't need to do that. Let's call it. Yeah, exactly. yeah. But 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 the the the, the uh, what is it called? The aperture ring on the Jupiter three feels like crap to me. Well, yeah. I mean, most of them are, uh, but you get some that that work quite nicely. But I mean, I've I've got to say my my viewpoint about uh, the Jupiter three and the Jupiter eight uh, entirely down to uh, adapting to digital uh, mm-hmm. and. Um, I've I've been, I've got some decent shots out of a Jupiter Eight on the rare occasion I've I've, I've used my Jupiter Eight, um, but mm-hmm. I I really really enjoy using the 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 well actually I don't do I have a Jupiter Three anymore I think I've sold them all because I've I've got uh, an Opton Sonar now. Wait, uh, didn't but, you have a Sandsock one? Um, it was reasonably Sandsock, but it was um, the, Johnny's got the uh, the the industrially Sandsocked. Uh, Jupiter three, although most Jupiter threes pretty much came pre sandsocked uh, anyway. <laughs> Wait, sorry, what is sandsock? Oh, you've not you've not been paying attention, Ethan. Um, <laughs> Simon, explain. Yeah, sandsocking is the process of um, uh, well, it's when you have a a lens that has multiple circular and and it could be in different directions, but uh, cleaning marks uh, heavy cleaning marks and most jupiter threes uh pretty much come out the factory sand socked oh sand so, like sand yeah 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 so, so it's like you I, put it in a sock full of sand uh, yeah, and i, miss I mean i do this all of my lenses are like that i am yeah. It's wet sand, by the way, uh, from the sea. It needs to be salted uh, salted (laughs) as well. I see. Yeah, so, I mean, I think the Jupiter 8 works well adapted. Um, I never use it. Like, on the A7, I'll use the Canon 51.2 LTM. And then on the – or I'll use the 55 micro Nikkor if I'm in the studio. Or I'll use the Jupiter 8 on film. yeah, I, mean, I, I think I can get away with with the Canon on digital because I can, you know, zoom in to the mm-hmm. the focus point. Um, I kind of like that, but um, yeah, well, yeah, no problems with the Jupiter Eight. I, th- I think for for me, the Jupiter Three is in, uh, is possibly one of the ultimate 
lenses for adapting to digital if you like classic lenses and that non-sterile look mm -hmm. uh, because it's uh, it usually has um, circular aberration and it, mm -hmm. odd, odd things go on with it but there's a there's an organic feel uh, to, to to the images and i i think it's a special lens but simply because it looks like it's an old lens that you're using rather than you know a a good older lens if that makes sense simon have you seen have you had one of the uh, Canon LTM fifty one twos? No, I've, I've come close um, on a, on a few occasions to getting one, but every time um, it's happened, they've uh, they've been uh, had had issues with the coating breaking down in them. So it looks like uh -huh. they're like wet inside, but it's actually the coating started uh, yeah. to to bead and puddle almost. I used to sell those as magical mystery lenses or magical mystery rainbow lenses on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think, I mean, the, the Canon is even more so in terms of like having a huge amount of character. Um, and it, like, I just find it that it's uh, really only usable and controllable on a digital camera. It's, it's like yeah. a dog on film. It, yeah. it really is super super terrible on film yeah. i agree although i mean the jupiter 3 um as as much as as much as we we diss it i i must say of all the classic sonar designs i do prefer it to the nikkor uh five centimeter f 1.4 in many circumstances yeah all those nikkor lenses are crap <laughs> i don't like them cool. I'm, I'm a big i'm a big nikon lens fan but like i am not a, into nikon rangefinders or nikon you know, like my, my deal is Canon rangefinders, Nikon SLRs. Uh, although, you know, I have, yeah, <laughs> I got a, I got a bunch of everything, but, um, man, Canon SLRs bother me for the most part and Nikon rangefinders or the contacts rangefinders or the Kiev rangefinders are all ugh, so unergonomic and like they could, they could have, you know, a lens made by Porsche on it. I wouldn't care. <laughs> too annoying to use yeah. actually well i think that gives us a, a good good direction to head over uh to to the eastern block um i, I don't know if this is yeah because uh yeah yeah let's be, do go, it we might be going off the, the the running order there of your lenses but uh i know that this is something that you you know especially on, on the medium format uh, yeah. side of things that uh, we we probably don't get to talk that much about the uh, in particular the, the the Soviet medium format lenses and and things like that so uh, yeah yeah let's let's head there okay okay so uh, before we get to the medium format stuff I have one more uh, Soviet thirty five millimeter lens that I love uh, it's the Jupiter twelve which is a thirty five two eight um, and that's the cam that's the lens that's always on my Canon P and I recalibrated the rangefinder to match it. Um, it's really small. It's really well built. Um, a lot of people hate them because the cam is not right and never was right because it's like a stolen, I think, Biogon design, yep. um, which was meant to be focused on like a contacts or, you know, Kiev. You can buy them for nothing in Kiev mounts, uh, but who would want to use one of those terrible cameras unless you adapt? If you're going to adapt it, you might as well get the Kiev one cheaply, but who knows what the adapter costs. It, I hate those cameras. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you can get one in LTM, and it's the, the focus is always a little off, but um, 
you can also recalibrate your camera to it. I did not recalibrate my Leica to that. I'll, I'll just use the Summicron, uh, and it works perfectly every time. But uh, the Canon P, which I bought for, you know, sliding down cliffs and banging into things. Um, yeah, that I mean, that lens is excellent. It's got plenty of character. It's sharp enough, even wide open. Um, it's really small form factor. It's, you know, in like a tank of a aluminium or or maybe even steel shell i don't know um i haven't banged it enough to find out but yeah i've owned those a few of them over the years i even owned one on like a kiev rangefinder back in the late 90s um they're great i don't know if you guys have had them i think they're a really terrible lens to adapt because the the um the rear element comes back so far that mm-hmm. the angle of light hitting the sensor is often like super off axis mm-hmm. and you get yeah. weird fringing and banding, but on film, they're beautiful. Yeah, I've, I've used one um, on my M2 and it, it, it worked perfectly. Actually, I, I, I shot a roll of film and they, I think the only shot that actually came out uh, was mm-hmm. a few, few problems and that was with that lens at f2.8. Um, of uh, an environmental portrait as well, funnily enough, cool. and yeah. uh, and that was absolutely spot on. But uh, uh, this is this is uh, John, with Johnny not being here. This, of course, is one of Johnny's favourite lenses, uh, and he uh, often mm-hmm. tells us how much he loves this lens. So uh, I really love it. I have one qualm with it. That, that was is... sarcasm in Simon's voice, by the way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, why does Johnny hate that this uh, lens? I've missed because uh, it's cold in Chicago. I, I too hate that lens, but but do go on. <laughs> well, I only have one qualm with the lens, which is that um, the aperture ring is on the front, and it's like uh-huh. it's clickless and kind of loose, and it's you're always having to constantly check to make sure you're at the right aperture, and like also the throw of the aperture ring is very small, and so like it's very easy to shoot at f11 or f22 when you're trying to shoot at f16 type of deal. Um, you know, like if, again, if I were to go out and buy a lens that I wanted to use all the time at that focal length, I'd probably buy the Voigtlander, uh, 35, But if you need a lens to like bang the shit out of, um, and still work really well, again, you know, I'm probably shooting it at eight on the street. Um, I, I really love it. I think it's, it's a good value. It looks nice. Um, the it looks nice. That, I mean, the the images look nice. Oh, okay. And it, I mean, it's. It, I don't. I don't think it's like a bad looking lens. And I love how small it is. Right. Like, I don't. I don't really care what my cameras look like. You know, my M4 has all of the leatherette falling off. Most of my cameras are covered in duct tape anyway. Like, mm-hmm. uh, as as a camera designer, I kind of get into like what things look like for the ability to sell them. And I get like super angry that there's this concept of like masculine versus feminine design versus uh-huh. like, you know, hard corners and sharp chamfers being for men, extreme deodorant or uh, like soft <laughs> curves in women's deodorant. Like I see it as like, you know, seventies cars, people think of them as like square and masculine, but that's just because of cheap metal bending technology and nineties cars are all bubbly and feminine. But you know, to me, that's like, we've just moved on to injection molding and, uh, hard corners don't pop out of injection molds super well, you know? Um, anyway, I, I think, well, why don't we say it's a handsome lens? <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I like the Jupiter 12. I've got no problem with it at all. 
Apart from it's not good on digital. That's the that's the only criticism yeah. really. Perry, what's your what's your beef with that lens? I, I just don't like it. <laughs> I, don't like the way it I don't like the way it feels. I don't like the way it handles. I'm not in love with the images that come out of it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, mean like it, it, it's cheap. That's it is cheap. If I had to pick between it and the Summicron, like, easy decision, right? But, um, yeah, man, like, the Summicron has become, since I've owned it, way too expensive to, with no filter, like, just wear it like a necklace if I'm uh -huh. climbing rocks. Yeah, yeah. As you said, as a, as a lens that you don't mind beating the crap out of, um, Jupiter 12 is a pretty good candidate, I guess. Maybe, uh, maybe like these days, I would, I haven't actually owned any like seven artisans lenses and they don't make them in LTM, right? My, my no. beat up rangefinder body is a LTM. Um, but like, I, I think those are, or the Voigtlanders are a little bit more expensive these days, or I think those are really excellent lenses. It's, it, I don't want to say that it's hard to tell them from a Leica, but they're, Image quality wise, they don't leave uh, much to be desired. Yeah, I, I think you know, like the Seven Artisans thirty five f two, and the Voigtlander thirty five two five color scope R are yeah. pretty much a best bang for the buck out there. Yeah, uh, but the the Seven Artisans just a word of caution on that because I did buy it and test it, you know, um, extensively, and it, it's really really nice. Handles great, the images are great. But it is not a 35 f2. Um, it's more like a third, oh, it's more like a 38 2.5. What? Yeah, they fudge the number. I mean, it's a Chinese lens, Chinese numbers. Uh -huh. they, uh -huh. they fudge the numbers. Uh, so in terms of field of view, it is tighter than a 35. So it's more like a 38. And mm -hmm. then the, the the difference in iris size and light transmission and depth of field from what's marked as f2 and f2.8 is more like a third of a stop. Uh huh. So, yeah, the, the numbers are lies. But uh, so to me, I compare that lens much more to the 35 uh, 2.5 color scope R as uh -huh. a result, um, as opposed to comparing it to the 35 F2s. Good to know. Mm. Okay, well, uh, well, the thought also just occurred to me then about um, what, the num what the numbers are saying. I mean, there are plenty of lenses out there that aren't what they say they are um and the flatagon being a being one that we've spoken about in the past which is uh, uh always always interested me that the the lens that's uh, the mere one lens which is ultimately a derivative of the flatagon um is uh, labeled as a 37 millimeter lens as opposed to a 35 millimeter that it's actually based off and you put the two together and they've got an identical uh, angle of view yeah yeah, I mean, the the actual angle of view, there's enough tolerance and variation between lenses that, that doesn't bother me as much as the, uh, the the mislabeled iris size, the mislabeled aperture. Mm -hmm. but, the, but that was, just, just, to, just to re recap on that one, you were saying that the, the difference between one stop and the next didn't equate in, in terms of shutter speed. Is that, is that what you were saying? Both in terms of, uh, yeah, your exposure, both in terms of like the light transmission, um, but also importantly, more importantly, if you look at the front of the lens and you go from F2 to F2.8, the amount of aperture that stops down is uh. tiny. 
Like there's no way that's a full stop. So that's how I know the numbers are fudged because if like I've got so many 35 F2 lenses and when you go from F2 to F2.8, you know, almost yeah, quite a large chunk of, of the surface area gets, you know, stopped out by the aperture, but not on the seven artisans. Basically it's like tiny, tiny sliver. I mean, also it could be that, well, where the light path crosses is, uh, tight to the physical aperture on the seven yeah. artisans versus on other lenses, it might have a bigger physical aperture than it's actually using at f2. I, I don't know that that's true. the case, and I do believe in a lot of mislabeled but, products. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, but but I mean, there, there are some lenses, for example, that will give you um, only a one third stop of sort of metered reading between uh sure. wide open and a stop down but but sometimes that's down to fall off right, right. like the 35 1.5 canon ltm lens um you only get about a third of a stop difference but that's because all of the fall off is in the middle um and so when you stop it down one stop basically the middle and the edges become a lot more uniform um but the overall brightness of the image is exactly the same whereas the seven artisans it's not it's not a lens that has like extreme vignetting wide open. And so when you stop it down one stop, the kind of look of the lens doesn't change dramatically. Right. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to think that it's mislabeled uh, as opposed to some quirky function of the lens design. Cause it is, I think a biogon derivative. Well, one of these days I'll probably check one of those out, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, we'll see if I get one of those autofocus adapters for uh, A7R2 one of these days. But uh, don't do that. I have one. It sucks. Yeah, that's kind of my feeling. I'm waiting for um, like IBIS to have enough uh, horizontal travel, like or front and back <laughs> travel, to autofocus like a uh, you know one of those old contacts. Was it the AX or the RX that, or NX that oh, the focused AX. in the body? Yeah, those are wild. Yeah, Simon is obsessed with his Contax AX. Yeah, they're great. I've bought and sold a few of them. I mean, like, uh, what a kludge. Um, but the idea is good. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a. I, I do love that camera. Uh, it it's just wildly. Oh, it's not it's not impractical. I mean, you can use it as a camera. Um, yeah, you just but, need Sasquatch hands. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. It's 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 completely functional and it does more things than any any other camera ever. Um, but yeah, it's 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 how it gets how it gets there is just really peculiar. Yeah, it's chunk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, speaking of weird semi-functional cameras, are you guys fans of the Kiev 60? Is is that the Hasselbladsky? No, so that's, no, the, that's the 88, 88 oh, or the 88CM. Okay. Um, so <clears throat> buying and selling cameras, eventually I bought a few Hasselblads. And like my favorite medium format camera by far is the 500CM with uh, 82.8 planar on it. I love that camera. But... For years, um, I had, like in high school, when I had no money, you could buy like an entire medium format kit for, I don't know, like 110 bucks on eBay. I had a bunch of Kiev 60s. Right now, I own three Kiev 60s. They're, they're um, kind of like a, a rip on the Pentacon 6. Mm-hmm. looks like a 35-millimeter SLR. Uh, that's what uh, I was going to say. That's what, that's what I got confused with. So I thought I was thinking of the Kiev, Kiev 6, uh, because it's like the 6C and uh, stuff like that with no. a left-handed shutter and stuff. Oh. I've yeah, never so seen 60, a working Kiev 60. 
Oh, well, I mean, working is r- like a relative term, Perry. Uh, my, you know, so like being being a bootleg engineer, my girlfriend, Laura, likes to say that like everything I own, like all my cars have like tricks, like like nobody can steal my car unless they know all of the tricks, right? <laughs> Which are basically just things I've been too lazy to fix because I know a way around it. Like, um, you know, there's a slow leak on the radio and I could pull the radio out of my van or I could just pull the battery terminal off every time I park it, which I do. <laughs> um, so the Kievs all have tricks. So in high school, I bought a bunch of these. I actually bought an 88. Um, those have these weird metal shutters in the body that Hasselblad moved away from. And they just jam that like, I've never seen one. I've seen one actually in all of my years that actually worked uh, and barely <clears throat> the 60 is a much better camera. And by much better, I mean, not fully functional. I, I have three and actually there was one point where I had three of them that had five different problems and none of them worked perfectly. Um, I've gotten them to the point where two of them work pretty perfectly. I, I can tear them down pretty well now. Um, and one is just, you know, missing a gear tooth. Uh, really the frame spacing is, is a constant issue on them. Um, it's maybe a ton of hubris to think that out of plastic, I can build a better body than, the Russians could out of metal, but I think I can. I, I planned it. So I own a, a Mamiya seven two, um, which I love, but also I, man, it's, it's a finicky camera. And the, now they're getting expensive for an electric camera. And I would like to build a medium format rangefinder based on the Kiev 80 millimeter lens, which no faults with that lens. I think it's actually a nicer lens than my Hasselblad lens. Um, which I have an older version of the 82.8, no faults with that. Um, I love the pictures off of the Kiev, except they're always like overlapping or, you know, half exposed. Like in theory, I love, <laughs> I love them, but the bodies are just so terrible. And then um, for a while I was using um, M645s or M645 1000S or, oh, yeah. uh, you know, those and, and adapting the Kiev lenses to them, but then they didn't have auto aperture they're really like slow and a pain to use you only got six four five out of them as i as a consequence of that i just hate those mamiya six four five lens or cameras they're gross to me um yeah i use them for years and years i just like they've got they've got issues uh, i've got issues with them i think they're better six four five cameras to buy um but where was I? Oh yeah, the the RSAT eighty millimeter two point eight is a total rip on that Hasselblad lens, and they look great. I think maybe even more than the Nikon uh, Nikon thirty five f two. Like they just render amazingly. Um, I'd shoot them wide open. I'd shoot them stop down. I, I like, yeah, they're they're such good lenses. Um, but you can't put them on any good body. That will, you know, shoot a six by six, and uh, that is annoying to me. And I think that's what keeps their prices so low. Like, uh-huh. so what, what can you mount them on that doesn't suck? Yeah, the, I mean, the results that I've seen uh, from these lenses are really, really nice. You know, as you say, can't really see a difference between them and the results you get out of a Hasselblad. Mine are a little higher contrast. Uh, a little mm-hmm. snappier, but then again, you know, I have a 500 CM that was originally released as a C and then modified, which is 
what that M was for, and then they just started releasing them like that. So it's a very early version, right? If there was any coating on the lens that's long been sand socked off, um, whereas you know the the R sets were, I think they were the Volma Vega, the earlier version. You know, mine were made in the late '80s, early '90s, so they're still nice and clean, really sharp and snappy. I've I've had a, a few. Uh kiev cameras um like the 6c and i must have had the 60 actually i haven't, haven't seen the picture of one um i didn't have the r sat on mine and uh and it, i thought i'm pretty sure it was a volna uh-huh. um, of, of some description but I, even that they're basically the same yeah. one's the export version of the other well i mean certainly i i i was impressed by that lens more at the time than uh actually thinking about it now i also had the salute 88 which is that hasselblad one is the yeah it's a gross camera yeah and uh and that had an indu- a beautiful looking uh industar lens on it which was awful um, uh-huh. i just couldn't get anything out of it it was it had no contrast it, it flared like hell and so on and so on um but i was i was quite impressed with the uh with the with the volna lens and i'd also before that i'd actually had to go with a, a had a few pentacon six cameras which just felt better um, they mm-hmm. certainly felt like they were actually put together deliberately, um, yes. but they also had their fair share of problems, pretty much the same problems anyway. Um, but I, I actually, I did actually prefer using the uh, the, the Kiev to the uh, to the Pentacon. A um, couple of reasons: one, it was I, it was lighter than the Pentacon, um, mm-hmm. largely because they they cheaped out on materials. No <laughs> yeah. doubt. Um, but they also the uh, it the. It had a, what's it the um, the mirror uh, the prism uh, it was a TTL prism on it uh-huh. and it worked and it was accurate and it was brighter than the Pentacon yeah. Six was as well so uh, all all in all it was uh, apart from the frame overlapping issues which I also had um, I, I felt like it was a, a nicer camera to use but it just just felt really flaky yeah I mean yeah I I rarely use mine because I just don't trust them um mm. and again like i'm i'm working up to building uh rangefinder cameras with coupled rangefinders that you know use that lens um wait, but, wait, how, how, how would you do how would you do that so i i well so i have a bunch of rangefinder designs basically the rear element moves back and forth and so i just make mm-hmm. a very thin cam that sits um, on the outer ring of the so rear element and resin. Is there a that. baffle around the glass or something? Yeah, exactly. Gotcha, gotcha. Oh, that's that's smart. Uh, it's maybe. May, I mean, we we could talk all day, and I could sound smart, but we'll see if I can do it successfully. You know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, I I actually prefer using the Kiev sixty with the waist level finder. I think mm-hmm. the stuff that I'm shooting in medium format has been really sort of slow and deliberate and i i kind of like that um using it like that i do have some of those prisms um some of their meters even work and are relatively accurate and by that i mean within two stops um but (laughs) uh yeah i don't know i just uh, i i have a real love hate with the relationship with those cameras um i have built actually a dual sensor uh, shutter tester for calibrating their uh, shutters. And I can 
adjust the frame spacing if the gears are not missing teeth and I can adjust the focusing screens now. I need to make a whole YouTube video on like updating my shutter tester video so you can calibrate uh, focal plane shutters with two curtains and then also make a video on like the teardown of the Kiev 60, the, the greatest camera of the Eastern Bloc that breaks so many hearts. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like I, I just have like such mixed feelings because I love that lens so much, but have never found a good way to use it. <laughs> Could you, I, I just, just, you, just, sorry, go on. just, just very, very quickly. I just, just want to just, I think this is worth just, just highlighting the fact that these lenses are actually pretty cheap. Um, so oh yeah. They, Dirt oh, cheap. Yeah. So it's a RSAT lens. It uses a Pentacon six uh, style is it, yeah, actually, is it the same or is it similar? It's the same. Yeah, okay. But it's the, the 88's got a, a, a variation, isn't it? That's a bit weird, I think. Um, but yeah, so this RSAT, um, sometimes RSAT C, 80mm, F2.8. You can pick them up cheap. They're not, they're, they're a smaller lens than, say, the Hasselblad lens, uh, because they, they haven't got a, a shutter built into them. Um, and you can get uh, adapters are pretty easy to get hold of. Although generally speaking, you you go to either Canon or Nikon, and then you get and then you can put another adapter on to take it back to mirrorless. But these are good lenses that you can put onto a DSLR. Um, but as we've said many times, and you've already said it on the on the show that you you've got a, an eighty five one point four, and you take your shots at two point eight. Well, you've got a you've got a lens here that's probably about the cheapest eighty five millimeter or eighty millimeter in this case lens on the market and shoot the thing wide open and you're going to be shooting like most people would do anyway for a portrait so it's probably a, a good entry point into uh 85 millimeter or 80 yeah, portrait lenses at least anyway on full frame okay so i've never adapted it to nikon you know i don't really have the need because i have a lot of nikon lenses but uh, i assume it would be pretty nice i don't have any sort of sharpness issues although you know it's always been on medium format film and what i love about this lens is not how sharp it is it's how unsharp it is as things are not in focus and so like environmental portraits um you know you can really like pick out a subject and like choose how buttery you want the background and the foreground which is like maybe kind of lost um if you adapt it you know but well, maybe not. I, I, I have I have used the uh, the biometer, uh, so like the, the East German e equivalent of the of the lens, and I have uh -huh. used that on uh, a, a Nikon D five hundred, which is an APS C camera, um, and I really like the results of that actually give. I mean, it, it's you know you, you're throwing a lot of the image circle away, so to speak, but. Um, they, they, those those shots look good. So on on full frame, it, I'm basically I'm trying to make the the point really that when people say about eighty five millimeter lenses, the the cheapest one out there is generally the Jupiter nine, and they they're continuing to creep up in price. And you can get one of these things certainly at least half the price of a Jupiter nine uh, in most cases. So it's just a, a a potential entry level into that market for for people who are adapting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I agree. I think for for the price, you cannot go wrong with one of these lenses. And like, if you have some, don't go shoot a wedding with a Kiev 60. Don't go shoot like <laughs> something that's important. Like there's only a 30% chance you're going to not screw up any given frame, but the frames that come out, you know, are beautiful. Go, go buy a whole damn Kiev six, Kiev 60 kit, right? You could probably buy it for, I don't know, 
37 dollars like you know they're just they're like free um and if you buy like at least 10 of them you know you could probably cobble together a working camera that's usually you know spaces the frames okay (laughs) or one of these days i'll i'll sell a camera dactyl that'll take those lenses Um, they're really nice yeah. And uh, one one thing I think we have to say now we've been talking for quite a while and we've got quite a lot to go through which I I don't think we're going to be able to do that. Um, so is there is there one more either Russian or lens in general that you want to uh, you've got to talk about while while whilst you're still here because I think uh, we've only really got time hmm. for one more. Okay, so I had uh, I had been trying to push this interview off because uh, one, I, I really love this podcast. I am a regular listener and have been for a long, long time since uh, like an episode or two before to Jupiter and no further. And I wanted to come and like, you know, hawk my wares. <laughs> um, but I, I'm just like, I'm not there yet. I've been so caught up with the Bronco pan. Um, but so I've been working on um, the first half of this year, the things that I want to accomplish and sell are all large format cameras. So um, box cameras and folding field cameras that are laser cut and 3D printed, um, ranging from 8x10 to 20x24, along with some self-developing backs that are film holders and developing tanks, but not for film, just for paper positives, which is a whole uh, reversal process that I've been working on perfecting uh, to replace the 20 by 24 Polaroid. And in there, um, I've needed to buy, I've bought a bunch of big Russian process lenses and aerial lenses. And um, I've learned a thing or two about building symmetrical lenses. And so I've been tinkering with building uh, copal style shutters or Irish shutters and apertures, lens barrels, uh, and building lenses off of off the shelf, mostly telescope parts for some big rapid rectilinears that'll cover uh, probably about 16 by 20 or 20 by 24 in portrait mode, but not in landscape. Um, and so I've been kind of interested in in like old, huge, large format lenses and process lenses. Um, you know, the, the two lenses that are more modern than what I'm going to be able to build with off-the-shelf parts are the Kodak Ektar 12-inch, which is one of my favorites of all time, and the 14-inch, which I have right now. I sold the 12 and have the 14, which uh, I'd, I'd swap them if I had the chance. But the 14 is also beautiful and excellent portrait lens for 8x10. Um, I don't know if you guys get super down the 8x10 rabbit hole and the the big old lenses rabbit hole. Um, it's, it's a little specialized, but I'm, I'm pretty into it right yeah. now. I think that's, that's, that's one for our, for, for my other podcast, really. Um, yeah. Uh, the large format photography podcast that I do uh, every two weeks with Andrew Bartram. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and Ethan was a, was a guest actually a few I months was. ago, but uh, now we, we tend not to do too much on the, uh, the, the large format side, large, especially when you, you go past four by five, mainly because I know so little about the anything past four by five, really. Okay, so maybe I will save uh, begging you guys to come on another day when I have some uh, lenses that I've built that I want to share. I've I've cursorily built some periscope-type 300-millimeter lenses for 8x10, which are surprisingly good, but not good enough for me to want to sell. But um, 
I would try and check out uh, if you, if you get the opportunity to shoot some eight by ten, the Kodak Ektar twelve inch or commercial Ektar twelve inch. Uh, it's like a three oh five. Um, this to me is like the look of nineteen forties Hollywood. It's like a little glowy. It looks great in black and white or color. Um, it's sharp, but but still has sort of like that haze. And if you think about like portraits of like Marilyn Monroe or that that sort of you know soft studio lighting stuff this is maybe my favorite um studio lens and format um yeah oh yeah oh I'm looking at some photos taken by that right now and they are stunning yeah worthless to adapt right it's not a great telephoto no. lens on on whatever but but I mean if, you got to use it on a native film yeah they're they're kind of exact. Like, I mean, I also really like shooting with process lenses because they're very um, sharp and flat, and I let the film impart the defects. But man, yeah, it, uh, if you can get an eight by ten camera in a Kodak twelve inch Ektar or fourteen inch Ektar, that's right out of the forties. I, I have like wedding photos of my grandparents that were shot on lenses like this. And they, they're great. I love them. It, it's too, it's too scary a world. Um, you know, I, no, this is, I, I'm not joking. Like I, I, I like running from riot police every day. <laughs> fair. Fair. I no, I got friends to who... run around with an eight by 10. No. Although <laughs> riot, riot police with an eight by 10 would look good. Um, no, I, I, what I mean by that is, you know, I got a couple of friends who've been trying to convince me to shoot large format, but I just won't do it because I love the way that the images look and I love, especially pictures of people mm-hmm. and there are so many amazing lenses. And if I go down that rabbit hole, it's going to be such a deep rabbit hole that never coming out. Yeah. I mean, so here's what I've been thinking, um, in this project. So in the, I want to say late 70s, early 80s, the Polaroid Corporation built uh, seven of these 20 by 24 cameras, um, which were popularized by like Andy Warhol. And uh, my personal favorite uh, photographer in the medium is Elsa Dorfman in Massachusetts. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of her work, but like Polaroid never intended to make money on these things. They were just sort of flagship advertising, whatever. And, and the, the film is beautiful, right? Like a direct 20 by 24 print is, is just wild. Um, but they don't make the medium anymore. And up until a few years ago, you could still rent one of these cameras for like 1500 to $2,000 a day in a studio. And then you could take a picture for, uh, it's, I think it started at like 175 bucks a frame. And then it went up to like over $300 a frame. Um, so it was very expensive, right? And and still today, like just shooting large format film, the expense is the film and often the lenses, right? Because nobody's making large large lenses anymore, right? There's no need for a big ass copy lens for industrial processes. We we have better technology now, and so <clears throat> I really wanted to build, you know. Uh, like a replacement for this. I think it would be a fun flagship. What do you say? Like, uh, like a concept car for a camera dactyl to do, but also I think a good product. And if I can make a self-developing back, like you could shoot a 20 by 24 
piece of color paper and develop it for less than $5 and maybe less than three. Um, and if I can make a $500 lens with even a single speed shutter in it, that'll cover that much. You might be able to buy a back, a camera body and, uh, a lens that'll cover 16 by 20 for, you know, under two grand and be able to shoot a picture for $3, which yeah, I know like you have lens, lens acquisition syndrome, like crazy and you might not be able to uh, help yourself but like really you're you're not going to use this thing all the time you might be able to limit yourself to one lens and and <laughs> yeah like you, yeah you might just want to for for the price of renting a 20 by 24 polaroid you could own one of these things and uh shoot a ton uh for like like maybe a buck 70 a sheet plus a dollars worth of chemistry I think I think I'll make a convert out of you guys for sure. <laughs> I, I, I love it how this this camera, which I assume you you walk around with the, with the use of a wheelbarrow. Um, it's, no, it's kind of a studio camera, and uh, I got a van. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> um, it, it, it's uh, this, this this camera is the cure for for lens gas. I, I, that's. <laughs> I mean, it might be because there's only so many lenses. Like, if you bought five lenses, you would have, like, all of the commercially available lenses that'll cover 20 by 24, you know? Like, it's... Yeah. Uh, but that's not, how, that's not how severe gas works, man. Because once you have all the lenses you're interested in, then you start wanting to dick around with stuff that was not intended to be used that way. <laughs> it's true. It's true. You start buying <laughs> telescope lenses and 3D printing yeah. houses and shutters and... Yeah. Um, exactly. I got that affliction. <laughs> right, well, I think on 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 that note, um, we'll start to bring bring things to an end. Uh, Ethan, uh, it's been great having you on. Hey, it's really been super fun chatting with you guys about yeah. uh, rangefinder lenses <laughs> <laughs> and old Nikon lenses. <laughs> All right, so. Um, have you got any people you might want to give a shout out to? Yeah, uh, I want to shout out to uh, Simon Riddell and David Allen, the Danger Boys, who are coming on the Homemade Camera podcast to talk about their film, One Shot Inch and Down. Oh, nice. Um, which I have watched and loved. Um, and that's where I'm headed next. <laughs> Pod tartin around the internet. <laughs> but you don't, Go you don't check know. out their film. It's really, really excellent. And like, if you are a big enough camera nerd that you find my conversation uh, interesting, like, you're gonna love it. It's wild. I I, I totally agree. Um, I've I I saw it uh, just I think it was just before Christmas, and there was a, a get together. It's uh, that Hamish Gill of Thirty Five MMC was uh, he, he put together along with a photo walk. And uh, yeah, I heard that episode of the Sunny Sixteen. I was so jealous. Oh, it was it was fantastic. It was a, it was a it was a good day all round, and uh, and viewing it with uh, as many camera people uh, was 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 good as well. But it, but it, you've you've hit the nail on the head there about about who is it this is aimed at. It it's, it's very very much aimed at people that understand or are interested in the the whole process of one of taking the photographs, but really the the, the development process that followed it. Um, and the struggles uh, that they had uh, with that i mean it's it, it really it really speaks to 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 people of with that interest 
Yeah, you know, I think it would be interesting to just about anybody. Like, it's an interesting mu- um, museum, a documentary, like, from the perspective of, you know, the tanks and their historical importance in World War II. It's an interesting perspective if you're, like, anybody who makes anything and you're interested in watching others do that. I personally have built a giant uh, developing tank to develop some 8 by 10 foot prints that I made from a four by five negative way back in the day. And we'll maybe get into that another time in a large format photography podcast. But uh, I have struggled with some of these things and it was, it really brought me back and I, I, I loved it so much. I'm, I'm really excited about uh, asking them some questions and sort of seeing what they make next. Yeah. And that's, and that the, the video that they made, the, the one shot inch and down or tanky Mac one shot as it's sometimes yeah. called, um, that can be seen on, uh, Vimeo. I think you can, uh, stream it. There's a, there's a, there's a charge for it, but obviously they're, they're, they're trying to get, uh, recoup some of their costs. And, uh, and once you actually see what they actually had to go through, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's well worth, well worth. Yeah. The, it's worth the movie ticket for sure. Exactly. Best movie I've seen all year. Precisely. So, uh, like we'll put it just for me and you. <laughs> We'll put a, a, a link in the show notes uh, for that. So uh, if anybody wants to, awesome. to watch that, then uh, we'll we'll put the link out for it. But uh, yeah, well worth it. Uh, any others? Uh, that's it. Okay. Anything to your friend uh, Nick and your friend uh, Graham? Yeah, they're cool. <laughs> Go check out the Homemade Camera Podcast if you're into this. We talk about making cameras rarely about lens specs in this depth <laughs> but uh yeah this is, yeah if you know me you know the homemade camera podcast yeah fun yeah. times well it's uh it's it well it was the podcast i voted for in the sunnies awards anyway so i, I, really I voted for it. your podcast <laughs> uh, there you go we, we, we swapped over uh, that, that, that's good um okay um uh perry have you got anything any shout outs or anything you've got to say before we disappear uh no no other than in a it's 11 p.m in hong kong right now and in about five or six hours i've got to be up for sunny 16 ah so you're pod tarting this week then i am pod tarting and i'm going to uh demand that graham makes us a silver medal with ricardo bion's <laughs> face on it Harry is both my lens twin and my pod tarting twin <laughs> well in, in in that case then uh if you can have him make sure that he actually gets that ready for february the 8th if you would because there's a photo walk in oxford um that Sunday 16 are organizing and i'm going to be going to that so if anybody's mm. anybody wants a, a walk around oxford on saturday the 8th of february um, hopefully the weather's going to be okay, but I think I'm going to go, to go there one way or the other anyway. Um, then come and say hello to us. Um, if you want more details, if you go to www.photowalk.me and you'll see uh, there are two photo walks for that day. Both of them, confusingly, are by Sun 16 podcast. Uh, but one of them is down on the south coast uh, with Aid and Anal Mystery, um, who will be back with us soon. Um, so uh, they've they've got one on the same day as well down in the south coast. So if you want to go to the seaside, then you can go with Aid and Anal. Or if you want to go to Oxford and the Dreaming Spires, um, or probably just ending up in a pub, which is probably most likely what's going to happen. Um, that's also on the same day, 11 o'clock in Oxford, photowalk.me. 
So I, I just did your shout out effectively then, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's cool. It's all good. Um, okay, well, uh, that was my shout out as well. Um, um, so yeah, that's 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 pretty much it. So uh, Ethan, outside of uh, listening listening to us on this this people listening to you on this podcast, where can people uh, follow catch up with all the things that you do? Okay, so you can find me at cameradactyl.com. I'm at cameradactyl on Instagram. Um, you can also find me on the Homemade Camera Podcast at homemadecamera.com and the Homemade Camera Podcast Facebook group I'm pretty active in. Excellent. So how about you, Perry? Uh, you can find me on Instagram and Flickr at PerryG or my never-updated website, perryg.com. And, and seeing that seeing that Johnny isn't here, he, he couldn't make it. Um, what's the best way to email us and get in touch with us on the show? I'm, I'm testing now if you've been listening. Oh crap! Uh, <laughs> email you can send an email to classiclensespodcast at gmail dot com. Yes, uh, you can see all the show notes uh, on the official website classiclensespodcast dot com. That's right. Doing good. Uh, Keep going and. If you want to look at subtitles for some reason, you can go to YouTube and search up Classic Lenses Podcast, where you'll also find episode 100. Yeah. Uh, on Instagram. Yeah, you're getting there. This is good. Check, check out Best Vintage Lens, both the account and the hashtag, uh, because they post stuff taken by Best by Vintage Lenses. Uh, and they also post infrequent reviews of uh, this podcast by our good friend Ricardo Bayon. To be, to be fair to him, it's not so much in, infrequent. He, he always he, he manages to do every, every show. It's just we, you know, the day it comes out, maybe the day of the next podcast and so on. But he, he, he gets through them. He absolutely gets That's there. That's true. After, after he stopped uh, going on strike, he has been <laughs> quite regular with his reviews. Yes. Uh, and then there are the... There's the Facebook group, the Classic Lenses Podcast Facebook group, uh, where we hang out, uh, as well as the gigantic mother of all Facebook groups that spawned this podcast, uh, Photography with Classic Lenses. Excellent. Excellent. Did I forget anything? No, they're, they're all in there. Um, uh, and then you do coffee. I'm going to do coffee. Um, and I just want to say thank you to the four people that have donated to us since the last time we were on. And uh, they are in chronological order. Dan Tree, Mike Epstein, Barry Carr and Robbie J. And we've only got... Uh, the, <laughs> I wouldn't exactly call this a comment, but um, Rob, Robbie J has given us a smiley face. Um, the others just basically just... just handed over money which is really nice of you i've got to say but uh, robbie j also sent it with a smiley face as well so thank you thank you robbie j um so that's it uh i've got no shout outs we've already done that if you want to follow me i'm on twitter as simon four i'm on instagram as simon forster photographic uh we've done the uh um the facebook stuff um so our music is called Octo Blues and it's by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com. Um, so before I go again, just before I go, uh, just want to say thanks again, Ethan, for being on the show. And he's muted. Um, <laughs> <laughs> always, always, always. Uh, hey, thank you so much for having me. It's been a super pleasure uh, to talk to you guys finally. I feel like we're old friends. Uh, both, you know, Simon, you and I talk quite a bit, but also I just listen to you guys and you're my only friends interested in lenses like this um it's yeah it's a dream come true to be on this show 
Well, it's, it's been it's been great. Great to have you have you on there, Ethan. We like I said, we've been meaning to get you on for a long time. So, uh, yeah, we've we've done it now, which is which is good news. So we still have so many more lenses to talk about, like all the Ashika Electro cameras. Oh yes, 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 yeah. No, there will be a, there, there needs to be a part two. Um, right, so that that's it. Uh, you've I've already said all of those cl- closing credits. So I hope you've enjoyed this week's show, and if you can, be like Carl.